Hi everybody and welcome once again to another edition of Pottywood, the show where Andy can stick it up his backside. I am one of your co-hosts, Steve Hester, and with me as always, sadly, is... Oh yes, it is that infamous week I have waited so long for. Because what's in the box last week fell on the cursed movie of Ghostbusters 2016. But before that, I will do a quick intro myself. My name is Andrew Roger Carson. I'm happy as a pig in shit today because I get to basically live a moment I have waited for since The Last Jedi. <sighs> How are you, Steve, anyway? Good. Well, with that in mind, if you've got no one to call, then let's uh, jump into what's in the box from last week. Yes, 2016's Ghostbusters. A movie you have been avoiding like you are with money. So give us a bit of background of why you didn't want to see this movie before we delve into... Okay, all right. Well, I, uh, I'm i not going to say I'm the biggest Ghostbusters fan in the world, but it had a very, very big impact on me. I saw the movie when I was originally like about six, maybe seven, and I fell in love with it. Started by watching the cartoon, and then that led me to watch the film, and I just used to put it on repeat all the time. I would learn the lines and repeat them verbatim to my parents, no doubt driving them crazy, and I'm actually surprised to this day that my mum enjoys the film as much as she does. So it was the gateway for me getting into the world of acting. It was it just, was the it, gatekeeper. It was. It, it was that. It was that little little acorn that kind of gave birth to to the performance bug later years and so yeah when they said that they were doing a remake i was suitably unimpressed (laughs) to say the least now as a 42 year old white anglo-saxon male i obviously cannot talk about any movie which features a female lead or female leads in this case without being immediately accused of misogyny and sexism um saying that there is only one thing that i can think of which describes this film That could be many things, to be honest. (laughs) That's that's half the show done. There is a fart joke within the movie that isn't a fart joke. Is this the queef joke? It's a queef joke. Okay. Were there fart jokes in the original one? No. Was it a finely well-crafted comedy which used pseudoscience and a very, very well-written and crafted script with interesting characters that you actually wanted to know more about? Yes, it was. Was that in the 2016 version? No, it wasn't. What you had with the 2016 version is you had a load of very talented people who, when put together, put out a movie that has a queef joke in it. And that's a highlight. Yes. Because you have Kristen Wiig, who's a very talented and award-winning writer. Let's not forget about that. 
Um, she's also a very, very good dramatic actress as well. The same goes with Melissa McCarthy. She might not be to everyone's cup of tea, but she's funny. She can pull it off. She knows her way in front of the camera. Now, Leslie Jones and Kate McKinnon, less so on the dramatic side of things because they've come from Saturday Night Live. And well, I've... so did Kristen Wiig. Well, it, it, so, so, yes, yes. But since leaving Saturday Night Live and doing Ghostbusters, she was able to break out and do more varied stuff. Whereas yeah. McKinnon in particular, this was pretty much her first movie out the gate. And so they, I don't think they had enough time to build that impetus around them uh, going forward and what they could do to kind of stretch their dramatic uh, legs. But this is just two hours of just constant noise and directionless improv that just results in just frustration on the part of the viewer. There, There was a point where they get dragged in to see the mayor and they they just riff about, oh, the cat being out of the bag. Yeah, but I think they want us to put the cat back in the bag. And there was a genuine point around about there where I yelled out, oh, for God's sake, get on with it. Yeah, I know the very scene. Yeah, yes. my kids were upstairs tidying their rooms. They thought I was shouting at them. <laughs> it is just aimless and it's aching. It, 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 you, 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 you want, you want to watch this and then go hold on all the critics were wrong this is actually wonderful but no the critics were right it's garbage it is an absolute dumpster fire and i am saying this right here and right now if afterlife hadn't been released there is no way that i would have watched this film even with the rules surrounding what's in the box that we put in place not a chance in hell would i have still have touched this it's the fact that afterlife exists as a thing and the original characters came back and we were able to give them like a proper goodbye and a proper send-off admittedly some of it was a little bit too familiar particularly in the third act and yeah they do (laughs) kind of show up out nowhere but it was Something which felt different enough while being respectful of the original source material. This yeah. is just like... This, I would say this is even like a middle finger, but there's a whole section where the guy's just telling him to get out and he's giving them the middle finger. And you think, what? No, no. Oh, God, just even thinking about this movie now, it gives me a headache. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. And that's before you just get to like the final act... And it just becomes painful, this god-awful action scene where there's just cartwheeling ghosts and you're looking at it thinking, why on earth? There is no threat here. They just got a load of actors in and just spun them through the air a few times. That's what it looked like. It didn't look like there was any kind of danger. Where's all the proper scares? Where's all the actual terrifying moments? You look at you look at the opening of the original film, The Librarian. That scene is terrifying even to this day. Everyone's been in a in an empty place by themselves and kind of felt that oh there might be something just out of reach that's down the corridor the dark presence which is just there looking out the corner of your eye it's scary the opening of this there's someone talking about an irish proof fence now i know that the guy zach whoever his name is he's he's really funny you know if anyone's seen uh uh, uh he's in the office i know that i first saw him in the movie uh in the loop 
Oh, and, yes. and he was great in that one. Um, but in this, you just think it's headache inducing right from the very off. The fact that any of this was able to go through. And I'm I'm sat here ranting, and the biggest problem about this is the fact that they won't shut up. Yeah. Nothing goes anywhere. And it's a two-hour-long film. Yes. And nothing is happening, and it's and it's happening in such a long length of time. Well, I'm taking nothing positive kind of came from this experience for you. No. Okay. Well, let me run through some things here. Okay. Do it. I'm so, drinking my beer. Obviously, we know... It, yes, it was directed by uh, Paul Feig. Is it Feig or Feig? I think it's Feig. Yeah, well, we'll just say Paul Feig. Now, Paul Feig, uh, you may know, I mean, he has done stuff like The Heat with Melissa McCarthy and Sandra Bullock. Spy with Melissa McCarthy. Bridesmaids. Quite a lot. He did that as well. Bridesmaids with yep. Melissa McCarthy. Strongly enough. Uh, obviously, stuff like Freaks and Geeks. And if you really want to go as far back as possible... Uh, you can look at a film in the mid-90s called Heavyweights, where he acted in it as Tim. I do agree with you on a number of things about Ghostbusters. But uh, out of the entire thing, do you know the one person who came away unscathed in this movie? Uh, probably Harold Ramis, because he was dead. Nope, because there was a bust of him there. So they, And his son was in it. One of his sons. I don't know. Uh, the person who actually came away unscathed from Ghostbusters 2016 was Rick Moranis. Yeah. Because he declined to come back to do his role or another role uh, within it. And unfortunately, even for a film that was done, what, six years ago? Six years ago? Yeah, six years. Some things don't age as well. Like one particular line where they say, unlike Columbia, this university is 100% behind us. Yeah. Yes. Well, joke's on you, really, I guess. Yeah, because, it's uh, not. Ghostbusters Afterlife came out straight behind this. Um, I suppose it's no surprise that uh, the trailer for Ghostbusters, when it was released, still to this day, it holds the YouTube record for the most dislikes on a movie trailer. Oh, God, it's... it's... Still to this day. Yeah. Now, I want to point out here that there was an original script for Ghostbusters 3 hanging around from like the mid-90s. Oh, yes, this is the Ghostbusters in hell, isn't it? Yeah, well, they wrote a version where they went to an alternate hell-like New York. I guess kind of like this movie, really. So I guess this is the closest you can get to it, except this is actually much worse. Do you know what would actually be much worse? Did you know that the first cut of this movie was four hours and 15 minutes long? Yeah, that that would have been brilliant. It could have had loads more reverse misogyny going in there. Yes. Yeah. Because uh, sexism is, and, uh, you know, aggressive sexual uh, predatory sexual behavior is absolutely fine if you're a woman towards another woman or a man. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I Kristen so. Wiig's salivating, literally drooling over Chris Hemsworth and Kate McKinnon just just wanting to rip Kristen Wiig's pants off. Oh, the way you did your research on names coming into this, it's almost like you have IMDb open right in front of you. No, I'm just angry. It's seared into my brain. So we're Columbia, because uh, basically this film didn't do very well. And I think it could potentially be down to two things. One, they spent $70 million on marketing alone for something that was universally loathed as soon as the first lot of marketing came out. And although that's not an unusual practice, but... Considering Dan Aykroyd apparently was talking to 
Paul Feig and saying, you know, you've got to include this, you've got to include this, you've got to include this, is what the fans want. And apparently Paul Feig was like, no, we're not doing that. No, we're not going to do that. Yeah, we're not going to bother with it. And uh, I think Dan Aykroyd went very public on it that basically Paul Feige was very kind of, I guess, disrespectful to the legacy going in. And then I think they ended up going and reshooting a lot of the stuff anyway. So they spent some 40 million on reshoots as well. I actually saw that live. There's there's yes. an interview where he was on like a British morning, it was like Sunday morning kitchen or something. It was on Channel 4. And Dan yeah. Aykroyd was there, and I was in work on a Sunday morning, and I saw it, and it was like, oh, you don't like this film either. Exactly. I mean, when you look at it here, you, you try and glean some positives from it, and there is not a lot. You've got to give credit for Chris Hemsworth, because he just shows up. Right? Yeah. He, he shows up and, and does his, it's almost like Thor in Ghostbusters, in a way. He's, he's transferring that humour over, to the point where you know it's not just the franchise he actually can do comedy mm. kind of wasted in this movie i guess you know this was kind of the point i guess where melissa mccarthy's popularity nosedived a little bit because she's nowhere near as big as she was around the time of spy and um what were the other big movies the she heat. was doing at the time the heat yeah you know she was classed as the a-list comedy actress and now i can't even remember what the next thing she's in and this is the worst thing to come out of this movie. Is the fact, like I said earlier, you've got some really talented people together in this, and you get the feeling that they were recording all these jokes just on the fly, whatever popped into their head, as opposed to just going, "Okay, I've had an idea for a joke," and then taking it to the group, going to the director, and thinking, "Well, can we work this in? Would this work with the script? Does that contradict something that went before? Does it interrupt the flow of the film?" And there was a there are scenes that you that you look at and you think no you just all you just all need to shut up and let it breathe. Yeah, I feel sorry for Kate McKinnon because it was her first major platform. It did set her back a little bit, not a lot, because she's rebounded now and she is doing mm. a lot more stuff. Um, and she's very versatile actress. And in this, you know, she was just playing the weird one with the real Ghostbusters Egon haircut. By the way. Mm-hmm. Um. I think probably Melissa McCarthy probably switched agents after this movie. And I feel sorry for the original cast members who did return. Yeah. Because it it was such a waste. Yeah. Such a waste of those cameos. And yeah, it was done a lot better in Ghostbusters Afterlife. Not much better, but better. I didn't like the... Uh, kind of Star Wars holiday special style walk onto the set <laughs> that they did in Ghostbusters Afterlife. That was the point. It was like, wow, that tanked. Yeah, but at but, least they were all kind of shoehorned in together in Afterlife. Yes. They weren't kind of shoehorned in individually. Yeah. You know, and it was a nice, it was a nice payoff for those original characters. The best way it could have been done, I guess. So, Ghostbusters 2016. I take it you do not agree with the critics who have rated this as fresh. Anybody who has gone on to Rotten Tomatoes and voted this as fresh obviously hasn't seen it. Yes. It is an absolute atrocity of a film, which is more, like I say, is more surprising given the people that are involved. It's like all the ingredients should have been there, but it just was made, mixed together by a chef who was drunk and was missing a hand. That's probably the closest thing that I can uh, 
I can get to explain it. Just ignore it. Pretend it doesn't happen. Go watch Afterlife. Or, you know what? Go back to the original one. Watch the original one. It's more or less yeah, the same film, the only better. Yeah. Okay, well, look. It's over with. It's done. You never have to wonder ever again. You know how bad it is. You can officially talk about it now as how bad it is. However, I would like to go on record as saying it's still not as bad as The Last Jedi. Fair enough. And with that in mind, we're going to carry a bit of a ghosty theme, in a way, over to our anniversaries this week. Watch them again, all of the time, or we get them on Prime for free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. Ah, the anniversary section, where we go through the movies that were released on certain days and times. And there is a lot of story behind the four, count them, four, the same number of Ghostbusters movies out there, or three if you ask Steve. So Steve, can yes. you believe Possibly. that in 1990, on this very week, Days of Thunder was released? Not seen it. Oh, fuck's sake. How can you have not seen Days of Thunder? Because I was too busy watching Free Jack. That came out two years later. That's no excuse. Exactly. So, Days of Thunder, directed by the late Tony Scott. Uh, obviously, his name will have cropped up recently uh, because he was the original director of Top Gun, and obviously, Top Gun Maverick is absolutely smashing it out of the park uh, still at the box office, which is quite impressive. But he also directed our good friend John Ashton in Beverly Hills Cop 2, mm-hmm. the second best Beverly Hills Cop movie. But uh, you might want to go even further back for you arty style people. He actually directed The Hunger. Did you ever see The Hunger? No. With gasoline. I can't help it. Every single time that I hear about the hunger, that just pops in. And I don't know why, because was that, that song Bowie? was from Cat People. <laughs> yeah. And it was from Cat People. So I've oh, okay. joke up already. But it doesn't matter. Um, Days of Thunder. This was basically, uh, I guess, Tom Cruise's blockbuster follow-up to the original Top Gun. Same director in Tony Scott. And basically it is Top Gun in a... Uh, Daytona race car, I guess. The amazing thing about Days of Thunder, and this is something for all of you novice scriptwriters when uh, producers and everyone else tell you, oh, you know, we need a a tight script, an airtight script in order to pitch it. Well, Days of Thunder didn't even have a finished script when they started filming. Scenes were actually being written on the day. And there are scenes where Tom Cruise is in the car reading off cue cards that were written five minutes before they started filming. So just keep okay. that in mind. That's, that's not the first time that I've heard similar stuff. I think they were exactly. doing that a lot on um, the Pirates movies. Dead Man's Chest and At World's End, I'm sure they were doing it on that a lot. Yes, quite possibly. But uh, I can tell you what else was uh, happening around this time. This was the time when Tom Cruise famously received a speeding ticket in real life, doing 85 miles an hour in a 50 mile an hour zone whilst making this movie. That was uh, living the dream, living for that role. Yeah, well, if he'd have gone three miles an hour faster, he would have been able to go back in time and avoid the speeding ticket. Ah. Yeah, I see. Very good. Uh, The notable things about Days of Thunder is uh, the amount of disagreements between Tony Scott and the producers Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. I'm sure you've heard of them. But uh, these disagreements between these three 
sometimes resulted in the crews sitting around for 20 hours per day doing nothing, basically collecting overtime that apparently one crew member said they could take four full months vacation on. <laughs> okay, you know what, that yeah. doesn't surprise me. That didn't surprise me. I mean, this was a, the alpha male movie. Come on, it really, it really was. The amount of alpha males you've got on this movie was Simpson, Bruckheimer, Tom Cruise, and uh, Tony Scott. And uh, this was the movie that famously ended the relationship between Simpson and Bruckheimer and Paramount Pictures because uh, this movie had disappointing returns, especially following uh, Top Gun, the Beverly Hills Cop movies, one and two. And I think they had another movie in between there. I thought, oh, yeah, it was um, Flashdance, all which were big hits. But so the story goes, uh, Paramount apparently asked them to give a low-ball budget for Beverly Hills Cop 3, which they didn't end up doing. John Landis did, famously enough, or infamously enough. And the studio wanted Simpson and Bruckheimer to pay $9 million out of their own takings from Days of Thunder to defray the losses that the studio made. So naturally, Simpson and Bruckheimer said, nah, see ya, and ended up going over to Touchstone Pictures and Disney, where... Uh, They've basically carved out an entire career since. Mm -hmm. Now, because the schedule on this movie was pushed back so many times, this movie actually needed one hundred million to break even. Uh, it, well, obviously, you would have done that by now, but I can't see it doing that by now. Time. But back in the day, no, that cinema wasn't as big as it is now. Right, movies now can just make ridiculous amounts of money, but back in nineteen ninety. That was ridiculous. Even more ridiculous, they were still filming this movie the week before the prints were due to be made. Hmm. They scrambled it. Not only did they scramble it, only after they'd all packed up and finished and say, phew, that's a wrap and everything, did they suddenly discover, hang on a minute, we haven't got a shot of Tom Cruise going over the finish line. <laughs> right. So they had to go back and film that footage as well. Days of Thunder, for me, it's a guilty pleasure movie. It is almost kind of brain dead. It's one of those things you can just have on and sit back, enjoy. It's popcorn fodder. Quentin Tarantino has said, you know, it's one of his favorite racing movies, which, you know, one thing about Quentin Tarantino always amazes me is the movies he kind of pulls out and says are absolute favorites. I'm sure he's done it for like 50 movies. It's like, just admit you like every single movie. Um, this was the movie that launched Nicole Kidman into Hollywood, following her turn in Dead Calm. And... The most memorable thing about Days of Thunder, obviously, is Hans Zimmer's score, which everyone knows the theme from Days of Thunder, apart from Steve, who probably hasn't seen it. No. But he'd probably remember it from the old Amiga racing game. I never had an Amiga. I was on a Commodore. Didn't you? No. All right. Well, in that case, you won't. No. Days of Thunder, it's a, it's a guilty pleasure. I actually really like it. I do own it on Blu-ray uh, because, well, it's just fun. It's a fun movie. You know, don't expect a lot from it. It's It's not exactly... Hamlet, it's not Raging Bull you know, it's it's a car racing movie with Tom Cruise in his early days and uh, that's enough Okay, fair enough, so what do we have next? Okay we're going to go back to the year I was born so around this time in 1978 that far back, yes it is the real date all you millennials 1978, the release of the Chris Christopherson movie Convoy was released Oh, uh, is that the one where that song came from? Well, the song actually existed before, but they kind of retconned it when uh, they made the movie to kind of 
link it to what's going on in the movie because the original the original Piggyback song it. didn't yeah. really have much of a narrative. Okay. So it was directed by uh, the well infamous Sam Peckinpah, and everyone should know the name Sam Peckinpah if you've seen mm-hmm. his classics like The Wild Bunch. Uh, Straw Dogs, The Getaway, or lesser efforts, I guess, kind of like the Osterman Weekend. He was like the ultimate Hollywood rebel. And during this movie, well, he, he kind of took this movie on because he was practically broke at the time. Uh, he had a, a lot of alcohol and drug addictions, so much so that on this movie, um, he ended up getting pretty much blacklisted. It, it made him incredibly unpopular in Hollywood. Uh, He was uninsurable. There was a point where he ended up locking himself in his trailer for like 12 hours and he wouldn't see anyone. Uh, He was paranoid from the amount of cocaine he was taking. He was convinced Steve McQueen was out to murder him. You know, it was... Oh, trust me, there's there's a whole history of Sam Peckinpah that you guys have got to listen to. And his friend, the actor James Coburn, uh, visited the set and as I understand it, he ended up directing a lot of the scenes to finish that movie because Peckinpah was in such a state. So this is among the times where James Coburn would actually be an uncredited director. Uh, the other thing is, uh, this was <laughs> the film that caused Ali McGraw to quit drugs, cocaine and everything else because apparently she had a bit of a bad experience on this movie and she kind of decided halfway through it, that's it, I'm Cold turkey and I'm getting out of it. She probably saw Sam Peckinpah. <laughs> yeah, probably. Nope. Uh, nope. No more. No, I'm done. <clears throat> well, we, we mentioned earlier on about Ghostbusters having a four hours plus cut. There is actually a four hour cut of this movie in a vault somewhere. God knows where. United Artists, I think, must have it, which is interesting. They, they must have so much more story. The movie's only like two hours long. But uh, it'd be interesting to know what's in there. I'd say release the convoy cut. You've actually got me thinking, going on to one of my favourite subjects of all time, Lord of the Rings. If those movies were clocking in at nearly four hours each when they were out and with the, the um, with the extended cuts, what do you think the original work prints of those were going to be like? Do you think they were like about seven or eight hour long films? The Ishtar cut. Yeah. Surely. Yeah. It's... It's unbelievable, you know, because not a lot of stuff actually gets released on like the DVDs or Blu-rays of deleted scenes anymore. No. It's like we, we mentioned about Driven, uh, the Rennie Holland and Stallone movie that had, um, what was it? It must have been had three or four hours of other scenes that never made it into the movie. And only an hour of them were released on the DVD. Hmm. No, no. Oh, must have been some terrible stuff. Convoy, it is the highest grossing film of Sam Peckinpah's career. Which is astounding for a movie that came out two months over schedule and three million over budget. And that was but back still, in the days where three million was a lot of money. Oh, exactly. You know, that, that, that could buy you more than one house nowadays. Mm. You know, it's, it's kind of a kitsch classic. It's another one that I really, really like and I do own. But Bert Young's accent as Pigpen. Yeah, it leaves a lot to be desired. I still come make it out to this day because he's so obviously like Brooklyn, New York. But he's trying to play a country boy in this, and the accent is just way off, is all I will say. Okay, no idea who Bert Young is. Uh, Paulie from Rocky. Oh, 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 okay. You haven't seen Convoy either, have you? No. Useless. <laughs> right, okay. 
let's let's hope for this. I know that you've seen the last one, but let's hope you've seen the one in between on 35 years. The movie Dragnet was released. Yes. You have seen Dragnet. This was one of my favourites when I was a kid, much to my mother's annoyance because of all the sexually related stuff that was in it, which I didn't pick up on until I got older. <laughs> Can the beaver come out and play? <laughs> yeah. Do these look like the breasts of a 45-year-old woman? <laughs> yes, ma'am. They're very impressive. <laughs> Directed by uh, Tom Mankiewicz. Mm-hmm. And if you know the name Tom Mankiewicz, which sounds like something uh, David Zucker would set a production company around... <laughs> But uh, Tom Mankiewicz was actually the writer of uh, Live and Let Die, uh, The Man with the Golden Gun. I think he, he wrote segments of it. But he was also a writer on Superman 1 and 2 mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So this was a, a directing gig for him. And a passion project for Dan Aykroyd, who was a big fan of Dragnet, and the actor Jack Webb, who played the original Joe Friday. Yeah, he uses that kind of very, very staccato delivery a lot in his movies. Yeah. And what I didn't know, I just I kind of looked this up this week. I didn't know that actually Dan Aykroyd is a reserve deputy of a sheriff's department down in Mississippi. Really? Yeah. Oh. He doesn't have that on his IMDb. No. <laughs> but yeah, and it shows that he's, he's got a real love of these old style cop shows. And, and I know he's got a love of police vehicles, thanks to, you know, the Bluesmobile, I guess you'd call it, mm-hmm. from the Blues Brothers. He loves his vehicles. He's a very much a gearhead. You know, he loves classic cars and he loves the blues. Blues and twos, I guess. Yeah, and UFOs, so... And and UFOs. World conspiracies, so when he's not tuning up cars or, you know, he's, he's out there checking the skies. What a guy. Mm. And obviously this uh, was another comedy outing, uh, an elevation for Tom Hanks, mm-hmm. which is very weird when you look back and think, Tom Hanks was in this movie as his partner. Yeah, I mean... It... Up until he started working with Spielberg, he was a comedic actor. That was his thing. And I think that all kind of changed, actually, before Spielberg, when he did uh, Philadelphia. I think that was like the turning point for him. But before then, you've got things like this. You've got The Money Pit. You've got uh, Turner and Hooch. The Burbs. I love The Burbs. Everyone Uh, loves The Burbs. Yeah. So, you know, he... Oh, uh, Bachelor Party as well. Which was also released in 1984 this week. I just didn't have it so, um, yeah. But he wasn't originally the first choice for that role because they originally wanted Jim Belushi of canine fame. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess he was kind of busy with Red Heat at the time. And thank God he was because he's awesome in Red Heat. Uh, Albert Brooks was the other choice that they approached. But I guess he was kind of tied up with broadcast news. And it was very thankful that he was in broadcast news. So I guess Tom Hanks kind of fell third unless there was someone else in there. Yeah. This movie also has my favourite actor of all time playing the villain, Christopher Plummer. Yes. I love Christopher Plummer. And in this, it's so weird seeing him do comedy, you know, and, and really kind of hamming up on the role. I just watched The Insider again today, uh, the Michael Mann movie, where he plays um, the host of 60 Minutes. And he gives such an amazing performance. It gives you chills that he barks this room down. I know you haven't seen The Insider. I can tell by a mile off. But uh, it it really is just a fantastic role. But yeah, do you have anything to add on Dragnet before I move on? I will say this, that when I first saw the movie, I remember watching it thinking, oh yeah, this is funny. But one thing which stuck out more than anything else was his little wrist-mounted television. 
tell which me which was a real thing yeah but it, it, apparently it had like a massive battery pack that uh, that powered the thing but who who didn't want that to be able to watch <laughs> television on your wrist you can't even do that on an apple watch these days because of various things which stop you from doing it probably can do it on an android but yeah i wanted that watch <laughs> thank god it's friday I, I got in trouble because of this movie because uh, I actually called someone a puss-faced little pimp stick. And I got shouted at <laughs> by my stepdad. But I remember that to this day. It was traumatic. Um, but yes, uh, Dragnet, 35 years ago uh, this week. Uh, track it down, actually. That's another movie that... No, it's not an instant classic. It's not rated highly, but it's just no. so enjoyable. Oh, yeah. You know, like Convoy in Days of Thunder. And um, I know we're going to dip into the history of franchise pitches here this week and leading us into that i have to go 25 years ago this week something that could have an entire episode of itself 25 years ago batman and robin was released <laughs> oh yes that gives the esther ransom oh okay i know i already mentioned this earlier but uh, up until i saw the last jedi Batman and Robin was the single worst big-budget Hollywood film that I'd ever seen in my life. Do you know what? In the years that have passed, I have found an appreciation of it being so one of those so terrible it's great. No. I honestly have. No. Joel Schumacher, the man who has openly apologised for this movie. <laughs> you know, can this be the same guy who directed Phantom of the Opera, Falling Down, Phone Booth, yeah. All these brilliant movies that have preceded Batman and Robin. Uh, I remember first seeing it in the theatres. Yeah. And I'm just saying that because I know that George Clooney has been known to refund people who actually have gone to see it whenever yeah. he sees them. So uh, you owe me some money with interest, George. Yeah, me um, as well. Come on, cough it up. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of bad across the board and that's what makes it so great. Uh, the stories that I kind of remember around this and, and the things that really just highlighted when I have watched it again this week, and yes, I did, um, which is why I've got a bit more of an appreciation of it now. Alicia Silverstone, most of her scenes were cut from the movie. And do you know the reason why? She wasn't in a skin-tight leather outfit? She'd actually put weight on. Oh. Right? And she couldn't actually fit into the Batgirl suit. Right. Um, the big thing about it, I mean, it, it's it's not a funny thing at all from someone no, it who actually isn't. has, you know, problems with weight. Uh, but the press shamed the shit out of her around this time. They really did. They, they were putting posts up and everything. And it was one of the most horrible stories around this movie. You know, a movie with 27 ice puns. Yeah. 27. There, There is no need for that kind of behavior. There really isn't. There is no need for any kind of fat shaming or, or anything, or any, any kind of body shaming to be going on. No. Because, I mean, I'm like you. I'm, I'm, you know, anyone that's actually seen any pictures of me that we've, we've posted online, I am what is known in the trade as a fat bastard. You know, <laughs> but I haven't always been a, a, a husky individual. And, no. uh, it's it, it's hard to maintain and food tastes great and sometimes you don't want to go to the gym. And the 40s are cruel. Yeah. Yeah, they are. They are. Um, so yeah, the movie coined the term the toyetic approach. 
as in sure. make the toys first and then design everything afterwards? Yes, it was one of those movies to sell toys. Yeah. Which is so obvious because a new toy shows up every like five minutes. Yeah, we're going to make a um, bat suit, but this time with a grey tinge to it. Mm. Yes, toyetic. Well, that's a, a pretty cool play on words. I don't think I've ever heard that term used in anything else. Yeah. I'd say how disastrous Batman and Robin was is the fact that we're only just getting a new Batgirl movie now. Mm. You know, which is set to debut on HBO Max. They're not even releasing it theatrically in a time when superhero movies are raking all the money in. Well, I think I think Batman's doing well. Batgirl is still a lesser property, and I know when they, they they've had to recast Batwoman because is it Ruby Rose? Uh, she oh, said yeah. that she was going to leave it. So I I I think they're probably trying to just play it safe with that one, thinking okay, it's not going to be as well regarded as kind of like the the more mainstream Bat films. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't put a Nightwing film front and centre, because no one's got any clue who Nightwing is. Oh, you'd be surprised. Yeah. You know, you, you would be surprised. Fans I mean, would, but the average nobody, person on the street wouldn't. Nobody knew who Shang-Chi was. I don't give a shit what they say. Apart from die-hard comic fans, not one person knew who Shang-Chi was. Nope. And that movie was a breakout blockbuster success. Not seen Much it. more than The Eternals, and no one knew who they were either. Not seen that either. Ah, oh, well, yeah, I'm sure you'll catch up. Do you want to know something nope. really depressing about Batman and Robin? That this would have been the last Batman movie that Bob Kane would have seen. Yeah, because he died not that long after, didn't he? I think it was only a year. Yeah. Year after, and his wife's in it. His wife is the. Uh, oh, is it Gertie oh, or whatever? Name oh, is the yeah, it's the. Woman? Yeah, yeah, she was in the last one as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was, that was his uh, real life wife. I remember seeing yeah. a documentary where he was like backstage. On uh, the original Batman that was filmed out of Pinewood in 1989, which is a far superior Batman movie, I will say, even though it's it's Burton's Batman. Come on, yeah. Um, but you know, he, he seemed really jovial. But I can imagine when he saw this, he must have had those horrible flashbacks of when Adam West was doing it a lot better. It would have been better to have had Adam West in this film. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but. Come on, before no, George Christ, Clooney. Yeah. Before George Clooney, do you know who they were hot on re- being the new Batman after Val Kilmer bowed out? Uh, I don't know. This is going to make you wince. Serious consideration of David Duchovny as Batman. Oh, God. Yeah, we could have a Batman that sounds like he's stoned. <laughs> that sounds like a Batman who just, he just doesn't sound awake. Oh, no, stop. There was a multiple people considered for Mr. Freeze. Patrick Stewart was the hot favourite. Mm-hmm. Everyone wanted Patrick Stewart. Because mm-hmm. uh, he was only doing the Star Trek movies around the time. He wasn't doing major big blockbusters. The X-Men hadn't been released no. for a couple more years yet. And that really solidified him as a you know a major movie star, I guess. But, uh, you know, they wanted Anthony Hopkins. As ludicrous as that sounds. Uh Good Arnie's good friend Sly Stallone was also considered, and the one that made me laugh my frozen little testicles off, Hulk Hogan as Mister Freeze, brother. Now the latter two, particularly Mister Hogan, brother. Um, I I actually think that uh, yeah, 
don't look at the videos on my phone, brother. Um, <laughs> I think that the the choice of uh, Patrick Stewart or um, Anthony Hopkins isn't actually a bad one. Mr. Freeze is actually a very sympathetic yeah. character. I mean, you see his portrayal in the the animated uh, the Paul Dini animated series where it properly kind of solidified his character. It's wonderful. It's this proper um, oh, heart of ice. Yeah, heart of ice is just. Oh, oh, yeah! One of the greatest animated Batman things I've ever seen. Oh, it's absolutely heart wrenching, and you know that this is this is a person that he's doing what he's doing for all the right reasons, but he's doing wrong things. Yeah, you know, it's it's relatable because you think, who if they could do something to save the people that they love, wouldn't do that thing? Yes, and then we get Arnie. (laughs) What killed the dinosaurs? The Ice Age. Really? We've got yeah. no evidence for that. Uh, Akiva Goldman. Goldman Goldsmith. It's Akiva Goldman. Akiva... Uh, Bill or no? Yeah. Um, wrote this. Wrote in massive inverted commas. Yes. Because <laughs> this movie just feels... <laughs> I don't know what the plot of this movie is to this day. I still... Mm. I watched it the other day. And it's like... Hang on, so... Mr. Freeze wants to freeze the planet. Poison Ivy, who we haven't even mentioned yet, Uma Thurman. And mm. I'll throw Uma Thurman a bone here because she was giving it everything. She was like, you know what? I am going to play this. Yes. And just go for it. It's the most believable character in the entire thing because she is having so much fun. She doesn't care. It was like she's just been introduced to a big Hollywood blockbuster for the first time. And it probably was, actually. Mm. It probably was her first big Hollywood blockbuster. Um, but she is loving it, and you know, poor Jeep Swenson who played Bane. Ah! <laughs> That's those are all his lines. It's just Arr! it's no, it's not Tom Hardy with her. Oh yes, you were only born in the dark. No, none of that. None of the intelligence of Tom Hardy. This is literally just. Arr! Arr! That's yes, it. Uh, and he was uh, a wrestler. And he died, I think it was two weeks before it was due to premiere, this movie. And they had a great build on him. Oh, yeah. A really good build on him. But, you know, I've never seen the character being given such a disjustice. And to be honest, I do like Tom Hardy's portrayal as Bane. So do I. (sighs) Hogan as Mr. Freeze. There's something something that I do just want to see about it. (laughs) I, I would have loved to have actually just seen him come in for a screen test as it. Yeah. That would have been genius. So, what you gonna do, Batman, when the world goes cold on you, brother? That's my terrible Hulk Hogan impression out of the way. Uh, yeah, George Clooney, uh, he's apologised for this movie. He believed he actually killed the franchise. and Yeah. In a way, yes, but in a good way. Because, because... it needed to happen. Clear away the dead wood. Yeah. You needed a completely different approach from Batman, and everyone would use Batman and Robin as the reason why... You now had Nolan's Batman come out, which was revolutionary. Mm-hmm. It was the first time where you could put a superhero movie on and not feel kind of, yeah, you know, everyone's going to go, oh, superhero movies are shit, you know. <laughs> and there are a lot of people who still do that to this day, and they get given a lot of ammunition. <clears throat> Morbius. Possibly paved the way for the MCU, maybe? Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd give that. I, I would actually give them that, because yeah. it was a couple of years before Iron Man, even though there's... This debate over they if they knew what they were doing when they made Iron Man. 
mm. and what they were going to do. They say in retrospect now, you know, that was a plan all along. I don't think it was. No, I don't either. Um, poor Chris O'Donnell, I think, suffered a hell of a lot because mm -hmm. his career was never, I don't think he's ever been in a big blockbuster since. And I think he's does TV now. I'm not sure. Alicia Silverstone, who was the hottest thing around that time in Clueless and stuff like that, she ended up going on and do, producing her own movie called Excess Baggage, which is pretty much exactly where every single DVD of that movie exists nowadays. Um, the script, awful. And just when you think it can't get any worse, there's a song by the Smashing Pumpkins <laughs> at I the end of this movie. That. It's noise... It it literally sounds like static. It's, it sounds like a song that has no bass in it and it's just been recorded mono. I do like the Smashing Pumpkins, but that song was just like the worst thing to come until R. Kelly started singing with Gotham City. Let's let, let's not talk about R. Kelly. No, no. no. I, I think we've pissed around enough. Yes. Right, so... Yes, Batman and Robin, 25 years ago this week. I'm dying to pull Bill aside on this and, and really get the story behind Batman and Robin. I can imagine that studio the next day after the premiere, like, what yeah. have we done? But on the plus side, uh, at Warner Brothers, I have been to the Warner Brothers garage where all of the vehicles from every Batman movie is there. And all of those Batman vehicles, the Batgirl bike, uh, I think they had Mr. Freeze's uh, vehicle as well which was an obvious call for a toy but it is quite something to see because you've got all of these different versions of batman vehicles uh including nolan's and including the ones from the recent Zack snyder verse and they're all in one place and it's incredible and i think they do it on the tour i don't know because me and bill just went and he showed me and it's it's just incredible it's incredible to see wow. but yes batman and robin it's worth revisiting no it isn't because of how bad it is, and there is there is enjoyableness in how terrible it is. No, there is. And the reason I wanted to give you the Ghostbusters link is because all four directors of the movies that we've had in anniversaries have sadly passed on. Ah, ah. And and also for the fact, just to end on the Ghostbusters thing, news broke today that Netflix is now doing a new Ghostbusters series. Ooh, I wonder if there's going to be toys. I reckon there'll be toys. Probably. I wonder if there'll be female Ghostbusters. I don't know, but all I do know is this. Knowing Netflix, it'll be cancelled after one series. <laughs> well, at this rate, it might even get cancelled before there's a series. Mm. Well, I guess it's reached that part of the show where we let our good friend Bill Dalian uh, to discuss a very special period in Warner Brothers history that no one talks about. And with good reason. Well, there are thousands of infamous stories in the world of motion pictures and their production, and yet some of the most interesting ones, they don't really get talked about enough. Now, we all know the stories about the huge movies that didn't make enough, and the small independent films that built a studio, but somewhere in between is a curiosity space, and one production company has a very interesting history with one of the biggest movie studios in the world, Yet the results are movies that's well, it's, it's hard to say that they yielded any classics. They did hold a handful of the most disdained movies of the 2000s, but it was the place to go for actors and directors' pet projects to become a reality. In 1997, 
a small independent movie production and distribution company was formed. A year after being set up, they signed a huge distribution agreement with Morgan Creek and Warner Brothers. By the year 2000, Franchise Pictures was pulling what was set to be five major motion pictures with big name stars through the Burbank studio, including what was set to be a big time science fiction franchise that could equal Star Wars. John Travolta's words, not mine. Now what follows is a story about a film company with some of the worst big movies of the early 2000s, but also some hidden gems that have been tucked away. All from a party that only two years before the deal took off had owned a cleaning company and a nightclub. And somewhere along the line, it resulted in an FBI probe into the company practices. Now, to aid us in our exploration of franchise pitches is our frequent collaborator and guest, former senior vice president of Warner Brothers during this period, Bill Daly. Hello, Bill. Hello. (laughs) Well, that's that, doesn't it? It's good to have you back, Bill. Well, thank you. It's good to, to have you back. It's, it's been a while, hasn't it? It has. Can't remember it the last been. one that we did, actually. Um, there's a, I, I need to correct you on one thing, though. Straight off the bat. We did not have a partnership with Franchise Pictures. Let's um, take care of that right up front. Okay, so was, who was it? Was it Morgan Creek? Yes. They, we had a distribution deal with Morgan Creek, and then Morgan Creek was picking up the franchise pictures as a negative pickup to them. So we cleared that up off the bat. (laughs) So, Bill, uh, let's start off right from the beginning here on how you first came to hear about uh, franchise pictures. Oh, man. Um, I'm not sure I remember exactly, but I do know that um, I was notified by my boss that that we were getting delivery of a, of the whole nine yards from um, from Morgan Creek, and that it was a negative pickup to them from Franchise Pictures, which I had never heard of before. It, that was the first I heard was that uh, they were a negative pickup was coming in from from Morgan Creek. Um, we had a lot of experience with Morgan Cheap. Okay. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin with that company, but um, but I I don't and I don't know how the Robinsons um, you know hooked up with the franchise people at all. I I don't know what the backstory is. Um, somebody if somebody wants to write a good investigative piece, you know, or an analysis on franchise, I think it's book worthy. I really do think it's bookworthy just thinking about it because you guys told me that you wanted to talk about franchise. And as I was thinking about it, I was like, why hasn't somebody written a book about this already? Books have already been written about the AOL Time Warner merger. Mm-hmm. You know, um, why not write something about franchise pictures? Because it really is quite a story, but I don't know what the whole story is. I only know what I've heard. And, and then I know whatever my limited experience is with um, franchise pictures. So as I said, we did not have a partnership with them in any way, no way, shape, or form. They just delivered movies to us. Um, there were a couple of pictures where they actually used our facility for post-production. The, their cutting rooms weren't actually located there, but we have mixing facilities at Warner Brothers, and um, they're were a few, I believe, that 
that actually did their mixing and ADR and, and the stuff at Warner Brothers. Well, prior to the partnership with uh, with Morgan Creek, uh, franchise handled the cult movie The Boondocks 8, which it seems like at the time everyone was into or was talking about. Um, and franchise distributed that through 20th Century Fox. So in what is now a famous story with the director, Troy Duffy, the cast and the crew received not one penny through the deal. Was anyone aware of this conflict going on with yourselves and Morgan Creek at the time? I never even heard of franchise pictures before that. I I never heard of Boondock um, Saints until it came on a satellite dish or something. I've seen it. I love it. I think it's great. But um, I I hadn't even heard of it when um, it wasn't on my radar when I was still at Warner Brothers. Franchise was run by kind of an eclectic group of people. Uh, Firstly, we have the cleaning company and nightclub owner, Ely Samahar. We have the uh, kind of director, video movie producer, Ashok Amritraj. Is that correct? Oh, Ashok. It's Ashok Amritraj. It's Ashok Amritraj. And actor, producer, Andrew Stevens. Now, had you met or did you meet any of them around this time when they kind of came to notice? Um, I don't know if I met them on the first film. Probably it's it's possible I did. Um, I... I don't know if it was, I think the whole nine yards, I believe, and I, I could be wrong, but I think the whole nine yards was, was the first film that came to Warner Brothers. And, um, and I think it was probably already finished by the time um, Morton Creek, you know, got us to release it um, through, through the deal. There was some, something between James Robinson and probably at the time, um, Alan Horn and uh, Dan Feldman probably to, release that but that's um that that was never on my radar at all it was just uh, and the thing was that we didn't really get involved in the morgan creek stuff either they were an independent producer who had some offices on our studio lot and were producing films um and releasing them through us but we did not interfere with them at all um i'm not even sure that we did research screenings on them and, and of course, Morgan Creek, um, like franchise, only really had the one big hit. Um, was that Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? Yeah, that was Robin Hood. That was their one really big hit. I'm trying to, th- I'm trying to think of Morgan Creek films, and I, I can't think of any that come it, to hand. It's I, weird I, though, but I do remember yeah. the uh, the music that they had for their logo, which was from Robin, Robin Hood. Hood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which was from Robin Hood. Yeah, they spent a lot of money on that uh, on that movie. The movie turned out really well. I liked it. Yeah, I still like it. Beautifully done with the uh, with an American Robin Hood. But we're not getting into that one right now. That's mm-hmm. a, that's a different story altogether. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, a lot of this episode is going to be having that massive word allegedly put in front of it. Um, but the relationships getting into the movies apparently came into play due to the Roxbury nightclub where the stars used to hang out, and allegedly. It was here that they formed their business as a way to rescue stars, pet projects that were hanging around studios and not getting any traction. Was this how they were perceived on the lot? Yes. We would talk, you know, informally um, within departments. You know, we would go to lunch together and we would talk. And it's like, um, and I remember, I remember that topic coming up about, um, stars who couldn't get their projects to really move at a major studio could get them done through franchise. And the, the beauty of franchise was um, 
that they really knew how to took advantage of tax deals, especially in Canada. That's where they did most of their stuff was in Canada. Um, and they really knew how to take advantage of the tax deals um, to help finance these movies. And then they could get somebody like John Travolta or Bruce Willis um, for um, way lower than their rate, usually. And just that, just that is generally enough to get some of these movies done, believe it or not. Mm. So, um, so hats off to them that they figured out a way to get big stars um, to do their, their projects. Now, the, the whole nine yards was not Bruce Willis's project. It was his brother's, David Willis. It was his project, and he got Bruce on board with it. That's about as much as, uh, as I know about that. It's the, one, it's the one really good movie they did. I think it's probably the one which sticks out in most people's minds. Was the output from franchise seen as more of a way for Warner Brothers to boost their theatrical output? Or was it originally envisioned initially as more of a kind of like your independent wing, like Warner Premiere that came years later? No, it wasn't that at all. It, the, the franchise is a totally independent company, and we had no influence over them at all. And it wasn't a way for us to boost our um, output as much as it it um, took care of the obligation um, under the deal we have with Morden Creek. Right. Morden Creek was um, was good for so many pictures a year. I don't know what number what the number was, but you know I've explained before the business model was like twenty four movies a year. Okay, so we we knew that Dark Castle would be good for a couple of movies a year. Yeah. We knew that Morgan Creek would be good for a few movies a year. Um, we knew that we would be producing um, our own stuff. We knew that Clint Eastwood would be good for one or two movies in a year. So um, so to tally up what we were doing, and, and we had Alcon. We, Alcon was a, another company that we had an overall deal with to um, just a distribution deal. And it was only domestic distribution. Just like, And franchise was the same deal. And I think... Um, I think the same thing with Morton Creek. It was just domestic distribution. Um, and then they were selling everything else to other territories. So franchise didn't really figure into that. It was more um, Morgan Creek. And it, these counted as Morgan Creek pictures, um, at least at first. I'm not sure if then we had that. I know at some point franchise complained to us that um, they weren't being treated by, by Morgan Creek. And I don't know what that means. Okay. <laughs> Somehow they didn't, their relationship got strained very early. Okay. And they wanted to just deliver directly to us. So, right. um, so that's what was happening was this stuff. Um, so like it, I know, um, on the whole nine yards, everything got delivered to Morgan Creek. Um, I guess they were handling all the quality control, checking to make sure um, all the delivery requirements were met and all that stuff. And eventually um, the head of production at Franchise um, was contacting us about, um, we want to deliver directly to you guys. Can we just cut Morgan Creek out of this? <laughs> so, so basically they just wanted um, to put the middleman out and work directly with Warner Brothers. No, I think they. I think they felt like they were being slowed down by Morgan Creek more than anything else. Because James Robinson, the the owner of Morgan Creek, um, was a um, he's a car dealer in Baltimore, which is on the East Coast, and he he would come he would commute, 
every week he would commute. He'd spend like three or four days in LA and then he would go back to Baltimore. So, um, so it's, it's almost as imagine, just imagine that it's a part-time operation. Okay. <laughs> it's, um, I, I, oh my God. I mean, it, um, I just cracked myself up listening to the way I'm trying to explain this. We should be doing a whole episode on Morgan Creek. Never mind. Franchise <laughs> bitches. No. <laughs> No, there's there's another person. Somebody should write a book about that too. But uh, but Morgan Creek um, never got. I mean, they have the reputation of being really really cheap, and and they have business practices. Allegedly, they have business practices that um, that I um, I don't agree with, uh, that I'm, actually I'm appalled by. Um, so. Uh, <laughs> Somebody should write a book. Oh my god! <laughs> it won't be me. It won't be me because I don't even want to go down that road. <laughs> and I'm sorry. This is going to be the, the strangest episode of your podcast, and I apologize for that in advance. I just don't know what to say. <laughs> All right. You must have another question. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. Let's move on. <laughs> Yeah, this is definitely one of those. This is episode 13 all over again. Um, the practice of making the big star vehicles uh, at reduced salaries and cheaper productions became a staple of the franchise brand. And Variety even wrote a piece yes. about it during the early time uh, with the, the whole Morgan Creek Warner Brothers affair. Now, was this of any concern or was it an eyebrow raiser for you guys? No, it, it was just a distribution deal. They were making their movies. We were slapping our logo on them and putting them out. I think we might have been sending them to the Motion Picture Association for the rating as well. Um, but we didn't really have that much to do with them. We would go to the screenings when they would do research screenings. Mm -hmm. So um, at the very least, our um, distribution research people were attending those. I know I went to a few. Um, sometimes we went to the premieres. Um, I think we were generally invited to the premieres. Not everybody wanted to go, <laughs> uh, especially if you went to the research screening and you saw the movie already. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I know. I'll try really hard not to bash them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I'll just ridicule them instead. <laughs> um, you know, uh, they. I have to say though that it it was a very clever operation. It was really clever to um, to manipulate tax deals so that so that you could help have um, countries and states pay for your help pay for your um, your productions, and to get concessions from um, actors, you know, big name actors, so they could get their pet project done. And it wasn't just a concession from the actor. So. Um, um, you know, I mean, the really famous one is, you know, John Travolta, because he was he was such um, he was getting like 20 million dollars a movie at the time. So he came in at a way, way, way reduced rate. I don't know what it what it is, because it, none of that paperwork ever came through me. It wasn't a Warner Brothers movie. Um, but I know he, um, he came in at a reduced rate. But but I think he also leveraged other people um, who was were like minded who reduced their rates as well. So um, so that particular movie um, was way, way, way less than it would have been if any of the um, major studios had produced it. 
Yes. And it was really clever of the people at Franchise to, to come up with that way to, to make their movies. Well, as we kind of mentioned here, the, the first Franchise movie kind of coming through Warner Brothers would be uh, Bruce Willis' movie, The Whole Nine Yards, uh, directed by actually a mm-hmm. great director, Jonathan Lynn. Uh, who directed uh, My Cousin Vinny and Clue, an old favourite of yours, Yes, Steve. I love that film. Now, the film actually was a bit of a hit. It earned $106 million against the $41 million budget. And although it's not critically loved, you know, and as you mentioned, it feels like a Bruce Willis project, even though it was his brother, as you mentioned. Uh, especially you have his... One of his best friends at the time, Michael Clark Duncan, in there, and th- all three of his daughters actually play his kids in the movie. So, with the release of uh, the whole nine yards and it becoming the first hit in this kind of association, were Warner Brothers feeling very confident at this point? Yes, of course. I mean, it, it was uh, it was it was a big hit. Uh, uh, the audiences loved it. We liked it too. I liked it. I still quote from that movie. Believe it or not. You know, especially the stuff about the mayonnaise. That line about the mayonnaise? Yeah. Do you remember that? I do. Okay, yeah. No. So, <laughs> Steve, you I haven't don't? seen it. I haven't seen it, no. Oh, you haven't seen it? No. There's a line. I, 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 this won't spoil anything for anybody because the, the movie's more than just this one line. But but um, the character Bruce Willis, Bruce Willis plays a hitman in it, and, um, and he hates mayonnaise. And he's in Canada doing a job. And apparently, uh, this hasn't been my experience, but I haven't spent a whole lot of time in Canada either. Um, apparently, the Canadians put mayonnaise on everything. Personally, I hate mayonnaise. Okay, I absolutely hate it. And um, so there's a line <laughs> I just love. Uh, somebody somebody put mayonnaise on something that Bruce Willis ordered in a restaurant, and he tell in telling the guy to go back and fix it. He's saying if it comes back with mayonnaise, something like this, right, Andrew? Something like if it comes back with mayonnaise on it, I'm going to come to your house. I'm going to chop your legs off. And then I'm going to set your house on fire. And I'm going to shoot you as you're dragging your bloody stumps out the door or something like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and um, th- that's exactly the way I feel when something I order in a restaurant comes with mayonnaise on it. Okay, so um, so that's why that's you know that's why that movie is so <laughs> near and dear to me. Um, but of course, um, it was a hit. So of course, Warner Brothers is excited about that. Um, the I don't know the details of the distribution deal, but um, the the first money that comes in on a deal like that goes to the distributor. So um, so we were uh, paid, you know, our expenses. Um, in full on that movie. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that we were paid in full on any of the other releases they did. Yeah. Uh, mm, well, speaking of <laughs> the next releases, any good feeling or profit uh, must have gone completely out the window with the next one, which was Battlefield Earth. Mm. We've got to cover <laughs> a little bit of the story here. Um because this was John Travolta's ultimate pet project, it was deeply ingrained into him. 
uh, through Scientology, being written by L. Ron Hubbard. It was turned down by NGM and the built mechanic-led 20th Century Fox. Um, especially as the Scientologists were approaching him on the street, adding pressure. Uh, filming was set for Canada and a budget reduced from around $100 million. Uh, Morgan Creek Productions, with Travolta even putting in $5 million of his own money, basically paying himself to do the film. Apparently, Warner Brothers allocated about $20 million towards the marketing and the distribution. Now, was there a lot of concern up front about the links to Scientology and the negative connotations surrounding Battlefield Earth as a story? Or were you guys hoping for something that could actually turn into another kind of Matrix success? Oh, my God. What a loaded question. Hella loaded. Um, Knock yourself out, Bill. <laughs> um, first, well, first of all, First of all, um, I should point out that you guys get most of your information off the internet, okay? And we all know that's not the most reliable source in the world. Um, I can't be a source at all on any of this information because I just don't know. I this is all this would have happened at Franchise Pictures. All the all the financial stuff would have been them. It, Warner Brothers had nothing to do with that. So um, I don't know what Warner's Paid for um, for marketing and, and distribution, um, I would assume it was a, a pretty hefty sum, and um, and I'm sure that Warner Brothers did not get their money back on it. Now, this was one of the films that franchise produced that actually did their their mixing at Warner Brothers. So I was a lot more acquainted with this movie than I was with most of the other franchise films just because it was on one of our mixing stages and um, and I was um, friends with the post-production supervisor. And I honestly don't remember who the post-production supervisor was on that because um, they were hiring freelance post-production supervisors in the same way I did, and a lot of them being the same people. So I'd have to look up the credits to see specific who that was, but I would go to the mixing stages and say hello to um, to the crews, you know, the, to the editor and the and the director if I could, you know, just I, I just like doing that. I always liked the process, so um, I was never a stranger to the mixing stages, and um, and so I do remember that because I remember going over there, and um, there were people, not people on the crew working with it. But like engineers in the in the back rooms, et cetera, <laughs> who were absolutely positively ridiculing this movie, okay, while it was in the process of being completed. So, and the things that I heard in the back rooms um, are are <laughs> way way worse than any of the critics ever said about that movie. Okay, <laughs> so uh, and. And as word tends to travel across the studio a lot. I'm sure uh, people in, in distribution probably heard. I, I, I'm, I'm assuming that everybody was sort of bracing for a crash by the time that thing came out, you know. And um, I don't think it would have, um, it, it was just so bad. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think it would have gone anywhere if, if it didn't have Warner Brothers logo on it. That's the pity about the franchise films um was that they, they ended up having warner brothers logo on them which is a little embarrassing for somebody who's a high executive at the, at the company 
Uh, was there was there any kind of issue with uh, the the association between Warner Brothers and what was kind of a, a more controversial religion at the time? Did that ever come up, or was it just kind of a no? That doesn't matter. We're just going to make this film and just try and get this out as best we can. No, you know, no, there were never. I was never part of any discussions about that. But um, but when anybody would mention that the um, the original property was written by L. Ron Hubbard, you know, people would roll their eyes. I mean, you could shake the building with the amount of eye rolling that was going on, you know. But um, the thing is, that um, I know it's different in your country, but here, um, whether you regard Scientology as a cult or a scam or actually a religion, there is this thing about religious freedom. And it's it's built into our constitution. So as much as you want to make fun of um, these people, it's um, they're a protected class in a way Mm -hmm. in terms of religion. So people so we try to be you try not to be too critical of it, you know, especially if you haven't been exposed to it. Most people haven't. I haven't. I know I haven't been exposed to it. I have no idea what. It's all about other than what I've seen on South Park. So, um, and and anyone who hasn't seen that episode of South Park should. Okay, <laughs> that'll be the top of my list. Uh, that's the top of my list of things to recommend. Okay. <laughs> um, so, if there were um, if there were discussions of um, of the Scientology aspect of it. Um, I, I just don't know. I, I, it's not likely. Well, I mean, around the time that this was kind of being set up to go, uh, apparently there, there was a lot of concern, a lot of concern feelings. Uh, one story that's out there, apparently even Travolta's own agent at the time was trying to talk him out of doing it. Uh, apparently Tom Cruise himself, no stranger to Scientology, uh, he apparently, so the story says, uh, he said that the project itself was a bit of a death trap of a movie. Um, did you see it in that light? Did you think this was going to be something good? Or did you think it was going to be something that, nah, this isn't going to be as good as they think it's going to be? I I didn't really have any thoughts about it. It was... Um... Like we we'd all heard the story that so we we knew up front it was um, L. Ron Hubbard and we knew that John Travolta was um, was investing some of his own money and certainly his effort and his image and everything else into it. We knew this was a pet project for John. John's a really good guy. Nobody roots against him. I I I, I don't know if he has enemies in town or not, but but I can tell you he's a really good guy. And I go way back with him. I was. Um, an assistant unit manager on Welcome Back, Cotter, the first TV series he did back in the seventies. Well, that's um, going back a bit. <laughs> yeah, so he's—I mean, he's—he's a, he's a good guy. I—I I don't know that anybody wishes for failure for him, you know. Um, but my viewing of of the film, I just thought it was ludicrous. It, it was—you know—I I never thought in a million years it would ever. Um, be a success because I just thought it was as stupid as could be. As and 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 I don't like that genre anyway. You know, I don't run out to see the Star Wars movies. I'm, there's probably a couple I haven't seen. I'm, it's not my thing. I I don't gravitate towards that. 
And Battlefield Earth is not the kind of a movie I would gravitate towards anyway, regardless of whether there was a Scientology um, connection to it. I'd be ridiculing it anyway, just because that's the way I am with this genre. So, so I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what anybody's expectations were. Um, John, I, I'm sure, thought it was going to. I'm obviously it, it had some deep meaning for him, and you know, and a, and it was a real passion project, and I really mean passion, you know. But um, I just. It, it's not my thing, so I don't really have anything good to say about it. Battlefield Earth, it was directed by uh, Roger Christian. Uh, he was kind of chosen to direct this movie, and apparently he was introduced to the project via George Lucas. Um, uh, obviously, he taught him every Dutch angle that he used for every single shot in Battlefield Earth. Uh, did you guys hear the name Roger Christian and think, who? Um, I still hear that name and say, who? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Roger. I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying to be derisive. I just. I'm not familiar with his work. And um, and if you had asked me, if you had called me last night and said, "Phil, do you know who directed Battlefield Earth?" I wouldn't be able to tell you. I. I don't know. I just. Maybe that's a good I, thing for didn't, Roger. I didn't. <clears throat> well, I didn't pay attention to it because I didn't need to. It was somebody else's project. I was busy with my own projects while this was going on. In regard to it, I mean, you, you kind of mentioned that you went to screens, but were you present at uh, what was kind of coined the extremely awkward screening they held for this movie in Century City the, that they held for the press? No. Uh, apparently it was met with howling laughter. I'm not surprised. I, I've seen the movie. I've seen the movie, so I'm not surprised. Uh, but no, I, I didn't go to uh, press screenings. Right. Did you go to any screening of this? Mm. I I don't think I went to the premiere. I don't remember a research screening. I mean, I I don't even know if they did a research screening. I'm, I can't imagine. Um, God, there's so many bad things I can say. Um, I mean, I, I I did not. I I know I saw parts of it on a mixing stage. I I think I saw them doing some of the um, print checking. We would physically check. Um, actual film prints to um, to QC the um, audio tracks because we released everything um, in my era in my, during my time at the studio everything was released on a quad track meaning that um, if we had a single inventory of motion pictures every film that we released had Dolby Digital Dolby SR SDDS and DTS Sound Every every print had all four of the soundtracks on them, but you had to. So we had to run them four times to um, to QC the sound to make sure that the the optical negative um, was working correctly. Yes, yeah, some poor bastards had to watch this movie multiple times. I may have seen all of it or part of it myself. Um, because I used to pitch in if we were doing it on weekends, I would pitch in and help because I like movies generally. So I, I didn't have a problem. And what we would do is we would bicycle prints around, um, the studio. We had, um, like if you wanted SDDS, the best place to do that was screening room 12. Um, the Steve Ross theater, of course, was great for everything, but we usually did Dolby digital in there because that was always sort of the, the preferred choice in most of the cinemas, um, 
the U.S. anyway. Um, SBDS, probably DTS in room five, I would imagine, and room 21 probably was um, probably just the SR. That, that's a little too much, too much minutia, I know. Um, I do have a story to tell. <laughs> it's not about a franchise thing, but you brought up the Matrix earlier. The screening room, um, uh, building 12. The screening room 12 was in building 66. And that was where uh, Bel Air Entertainment was located. And uh, before that, um, New Regency was in there. And um, the screening room 12 was on the second floor. It's a two-story building. So you had offices on the first floor and a screening room on the second floor. And um, during the Matrix, well, there was a door halfway down the building and it, and you could go through that door to the to get to the other side of it that would take you um over to the where the adr stages and the foley stage and all that stuff was and some some receptionists there objected to people coming through so um i think it was regency before bel air said uh, we don't want people coming through this building so they stopped everybody from doing that so i always made it a point to do the the print checking of SDDS in that building because SDDS, one of the great qualities of it was the the um, the subwoofers. SDDS was really really deep in bass. Okay, so like when we did the Matrix in there, it literally shook the building when that helicopter hit <laughs> hit the building in the Matrix. Building sixty six shook. Okay, and I always did that on purpose just to get back at those people for closing off our access. Okay, yes, people at the studios and including me can be very petty. Okay, <laughs> I love it. I do. See, this is this is what people want to listen to. They want to hear all these horrible stories from behind the scenes. <laughs> Well, not every movie was The Matrix, though. So not everything, right. you know, had the, the kind of deep bass, you know. But but um, but that was sort of like the designated room for me, just because. And those subwoofers were on the floor, so they they were going to shake the building no matter what. But uh, but I always did it. I always did it there, and uh, and I never told anybody why until now. Unless I told you privately, Andrew. But uh, <laughs> now everybody it, knows. It may have <laughs> slipped out. <laughs> you know, and of course, I have a great deal of glee when I tell you that that story. You know, of course. Well, going back to Battlefield Earth, away from a much, much better mm -hmm. movie from 1999, uh, following its badly critiqued premiere at uh, the Grauman's, uh, the film has gone on to be notoriously assassinated in pretty much every single medium by pretty much everyone who reviewed it. It's gone on to win Worst Film of the 2000s, <laughs> as just one example. Uh, now, following its disastrous first weekend, apparently, we're back to those those catch-all words here, apparently Warner decided to cut losses and slash the number of screens it was going to be shown from 2,587 down to 641. Now, can you inform us of anything linking to this decision and why? Well, we don't make those decisions on our own. It's the the exhibitors, you know, the people who own the cinemas who tell us um, we don't, you know, if um, when we were doing Harry Potter, 
Okay, so if you the typical multiplex in the U.S. Um, and Andrew knows this um, has eight to sixteen screens. Yeah. Um, so with Harry Potter, with Harry Potter, if you have a sixteen screen cinema, Harry Potter is probably going to play on ten of them. Okay, in in various screens within that complex. The, the, the so. After Battlefield Earth, I, I don't I I mean Battlefield Earth was never going to play in ten cinemas of a sixteen plex, but it might have played in two, you know. But at, so after um, after its first week when it when it wasn't pulling in any box office, the exhibitors are going to start sending the prints back. So it's so we don't make that decision on our own that we don't pull them and say well you can't have this anymore. It's so bad you can't have it anymore. They they tell us if they want it or not, so um, so it's not a case of Warner Brothers pulling back on the number of screens it was playing on. It's more of a question. It, it's a matter of the exhibitors sending it back and saying, "No, we're not going to play this on all these screens. We have other movies that are making money." So it was basically the people that were running the cinemas who were there going, "No, this is not worth our time and effort putting on the screen." Not no well if if it's only going to play to two people there's it's not going to play there very long yeah so it I mean it, it's it's an open market you know the the marketplace um, makes its own rules they they adjust as the demand it's the blind demand you know there was no demand for that movie but the studio was not going to put pressure on the exhibitors and say you have to take this movie that's illegal we wouldn't do that I mean if um, you know. I know that in the old days they would do that. If you want Gone with the Wind, you're going to have to take these other crappy little films that that we have. You know, MGM would do. You know, but that those days don't exist anymore. We don't say, well, you have to take this if you want Harry Potter. It's it's um, you know, it just goes out and and it is. I mean, at the time, John Travolta was huge box office. So I'm sure that uh, I'm surprised to hear that it was that this movie is on so many screens. But mm. but I'm sure at the time the exhibitors probably thought, oh, we've got a John Travolta movie coming in here, and um, and sometimes some movies are are critic proof. This one wasn't, but some of them some movies are critic proof, and um, you know so they had a big John Travolta movie coming. He was making twenty million dollars a picture because people were going to see the movies. So here's the big John Travolta movie coming out, and um, and exhibitors expected the seats to be filled, and they weren't. So they started moving on to other films that actually people were buying tickets to see. I mean, that's just the way it goes. You've actually just reminded me there, Bill. At, at a quick side note, I will come. I will let you carry on, Andy. Um, when Star Wars, when that was originally released. Fox was saying, if you want to show this film called uh, The Other Side of Midnight, which was supposed to be like the big, uh, the big film of the year, then you have to show Star Wars as well. And that was the that was the way that that was supposed to be set up. So that was how most people ended up getting to see Star Wars in the first place. I think that's I think that tactic is illegal. I don't I can't imagine that that story is true. It, it might be, but it's not it. It runs counter to my experience. I know. I only know that because it was on the Empire of Dreams documentary that, uh, that oh, got okay. bundled well, with the the DVD. There's another thing I missed. There's <laughs> another thing I'll miss. Okay. Uh, franchise Pictures apparently uh, retained foreign rights to this movie using Entertainment AG, 
in exchange for $47 million of the proposed $75 million production cost. Now, we have to address what is the controversy here. I've done a lot of reading up on it. Following Battlefield Earth's failure, rumors of an FBI probe into franchise pitches and their practices were starting to circulate. And the word of mouth being that franchise had vastly inflated their budgets as a way to scam investors. Now, Entertainment AG did end up filing a lawsuit uh, alleging that franchise defrauded them to the tune of $75 million by way of submitting grossly fraudulent and inflated budgets. When taken to court, it was proven that the budget for Battlefield Earth was $46 million and the remaining $31 million had simply been padding. Now, being there at Warner Brothers around the time, around this kind of big controversial movie, what reached you guys in regards to this? I'm not sure that that's true. I know there was an investigation. Um, I don't know what the basis of it was. Um, I'm sure our legal department was probably worried about it a little bit, you know, because it had our logo on it. But, it. but again, we didn't do the budgets on these movies. We didn't produce these movies. We only had a distribution arrangement. And it was only domestic. So, um, so I'm not surprised that franchise had other companies taking care of their international distribution because that's what they do. That's what they would do. And same thing with Morton Creek. Morton Creek, um, it's like Warner Brothers may have, I'm not saying they do, but there may be individual territories where Warner Brothers is also a distributor because they've made a deal with us to do it. But, uh, but by and large, um, all independent companies, not just the ones that came to Warner Brothers, but um, all independent companies uh, will retain, retain some sort of foreign distribution rights and, um, and make deals with countries around the world. They may even make those deals ahead of time and help finance the movie. I know Sylvester Stallone, there were quite a few pictures that Sylvester Stallone was in, um, probably in the Canon days where um, the foreign distribution was sold even before they got a domestic distributor. And then yeah. they would use those pre-sales to, uh, to actually produce the movie. So I'm not at all surprised. Um, and one of the things they would do is, like if we did, um, so I'm just making these numbers up. So let's say we had 2,000 prints of um, a, a movie, a movie that was um, for Morton Creek, okay? And it's finished its domestic run here. Okay. They would come back to us and they would buy the used prints. Print, prints would be sent back to Technicolor from, from the exhibitors. And then Technicolor would evaluate those prints to see whether they were still serviceable. The used prints then would be sold to a company like Morgan Creek or Franchise or Alcon, some independent company, you know, who has a distribution deal. So they would get prints on used prints on the cheap from Technicolor with our with our sanction, and um, they would be then shipped overseas to um, for exhibitors overseas to watch. They would have to cut our logo off. You know that's why um, yeah. you, you'll notice you'll notice it now that I pointed it out. You'll notice that like the Warner Brothers logo comes up the shield with the cloud in behind, and then it goes to black, and then you'll see like the other companies involved. And then at the very end, you'll see a static card of a, of a shield with the, um, with 
the clouds on it at, at the end. They just cut those off, and then they'll put on whatever the logo is for the distributor overseas. Yeah, kind of like they did with Twister, because Twister was released by Universal over here. So it had no mention. Yeah, well, that was a joint venture. Right. Um, We had domestic, they had international. That happens all the time. We've done that with DreamWorks. Um, uh, We have done it with Universal. I think we've done it with Fox. Um, Twister's a big example of that. Um, And even Disney. um, um, The Island. Remember the island, the film with uh, Scarlett Johansson? Oh yeah, yeah. You yeah. and McGregor, yeah. That was a, that was DreamWorks. That was a joint venture between DreamWorks and Warner Brothers. So um, it had you know the DreamWorks logo here in the U.S. and Warner Brothers overseas. Um, so that sort of thing happens all the time. Even even Titanic. Titanic was a joint venture between Paramount and Fox. So um, whoever got the uh, domestic distribution on that made a huge amount of money here. I don't know how Titanic did overseas, but um, pretty big. But there's a, there's a perfect example of you know. Yeah, I think that was the one that was going to ring up, and I think you, we got brought up in a in an earlier episode. But uh, I think it was Paramount that did Titanic in the U.S., but over here we it was Fox. Fox. Yeah, yeah. You see, I do remember stuff. You do. You know something about movies, Steve? That's helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I'm learning. <laughs> Um, well, yet again, this is all rumor mill, so we don't know how much of this is actually confirmed. But apparently, uh, Entertainment AG only took Battlefield Earth because it was more interested in The Art of War, the Wesley Snipes film, and the whole nine yards, which we've already touched on earlier. And it only accepted Battlefield Earth as a condition. Now, you probably haven't heard anything about this, but was there anything that was circulating at the time, or was this just completely out of your wheel mill this is the first time hearing about it i never heard about it i those and, and again you know i was busy doing um good Warner films. brothers movies at the time yeah. i i wasn't working for franchise you know like we did we didn't do we did absolutely nothing to uh denigrate or damage um franchise we were if they made money we made money because we got a distribution fee from um, from the films there. Eventually, um, every now and again, um, and this happens with all the big companies and, and the smaller ones that um, provide product to them, um, every now and again, an expense would be um, incurred. That we didn't incur, but like franchise incurred some expense. And because they were our vendors, typically, um, they would send the invoice to us. And then we would have to debate over, well, should we pay this and just add it to the distribution fee. You know, that always, that becomes a question all the time. And at some point, Alan Horn himself sent out word not to pay any of the franchise bills because um, we were not making the money back on the distribution. So don't pay the bills. Don't, don't make it worse for the company. And, um, and both franchise and Morgan Creek are guilty of this where they weren't paying the bills fast enough. I would get phone calls from vendors of mine, you know, um, equipment people, people who are renting facilities and stuff. I would get mm-hmm. phone calls and say, what's going on, you guys? We've got your movie here, and I'd have to correct them like I corrected you, okay? These are not Warner Brothers movies. These are franchise movies. What's your problem? Well, they're not paying us, or they're not doing this or that. And it's like, well, there's nothing I can do. I don't have any sway over them, and I can't get involved in their business because then all their business would get dropped on me. So um, 
my advice to you, and I've done this with several vendors, my advice to you is that in the future, you get your money up front. Don't accept a PO. Get your money up front if you expect to get paid because you're not the only person who's called me with this question. And not just franchise, but that would happen with, with Morton Creek too. And, um, and I'm sure there were other people. I'm sure there probably were other instances. Not, not every bill for every movie ever came through me, but, um, you know, but the things related to post-production, um, a lot of times would, or somebody would call me. I would, I became the authority. I became the guy that he wanted to call if he needed something to get done. You know, if it was like the accounting department, um, who were, who were getting calls and stuff. But see, our accounting department wasn't dealing with these movies either. Well, you mentioned the art of war, and that was actually the next project for franchise, uh, releasing through Warner Brothers. Uh, it's a Wesley Snipes action movie, and it actually is not that bad a movie. I was kind of shocked looking into the research that it was not actually a Joel Silver movie because it did have that kind of style. Uh, and the movie, uh, apparently, it was once going to go ahead at uh, 20th Century Fox before being put in turnaround. Uh, Wesley Snipes at the time was on his career high with the Blade franchise, so he was box office gold at the time. Uh, the movie ends up making just over half of its $60 million budget back. It opened behind Bring It On, uh, the cheerleader movie with Kirsten Dunst at the box office. Now, following uh, Battlefield Earth and what happened there, uh, how was the kind of relationship between uh, like Warner and Franchise? Was it already written on the wall that this might not work out? Um, I don't know how to answer that. It's. Um... I mean, were you guys tied into a, a certain amount of pitches through them and Morgan Creek at the time? Or no, I, we probably were. We probably were the distributor of, of record for them. Um, I think, um, I'm just speculating, okay? I, I'm not an expert on this, um, and I'm not the authority, but um, I think when, I think at some point Franchise um, stopped going through Morgan Creek and just came directly to us, so that they, right. they were no longer had the Morgan Creek logo on them as well. And it just became a distribution deal directly with them and us. Um, and that's probably when Alan Horn was saying, don't pay any of their bills because we're not making the money back. Um, I don't know how that relates to this particular movie. Um, but I'm trying to think of when I started to eye them suspiciously, as it were. Okay. <laughs> there, was a, there, was a, it, there was a point where I started to eye franchise with suspicion and and it probably was because i was getting calls from vendors and i yeah. and and i just thought that was um unethical and and they were not the only you know i was getting those calls from warden creek too you know so um i was eyeing them with suspicion as well but um but i really had nothing to do with them really I mean, I wasn't even paying attention to what they were doing. We were just making sure. I would talk to the post-production supervisors. I would make sure that the that everything was getting delivered. Everything they were contractually required to give us was arriving. And the distribution was getting the materials they needed to get these movies out. And we were checking prints. And then I really didn't want to have much to do with them. And plus, I was getting complaints myself from the post-supervisors about... Um, franchise oh they're not treating me right they're doing this they're doing that and 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 i would say okay well 
um, I'll try to hire you the next time we have something, you know, it's like, we, yeah, um, there wasn't much I could do to help them. It wasn't like I was going to call up there, um, anybody there and complain that they weren't treating our, uh, the post-production supervisors very well. And I have to tell you that franchise really had some good people managing their productions. I mean, they really did. They had some first rate, um, production executives who were um, looking overseeing these movies. Um, so there, there were really highly seasoned professionals um, behind the scenes on this. Um, but I don't know what was going on corporate-wise. If we're going to talk about The Art of War, um, that was one of the franchise films that I actually liked. Yeah. I actually liked that. It's pretty one. good. I, I can't remember. It's, it's, it's not particularly memorable. I don't remember that much about it. That was I, I liked that film. Christian and Wesley Snipes was still a movie star. We had tremendous success with Passenger Fifty Seven, and and there are other movies I think we did with Wesley. Demolition Man. Oh, yeah. I love Demolition yeah. Man. There was that. Did you guys get the version with Pizza Hut or Taco Bell? I've seen the Taco Bell version. Yeah, because I used to always rent it from the video store, and the one that we had from the video store had Taco Bell. And of course, over here at the time, we had no idea what Taco Bell was, but we kind of thought, okay, this is some kind of fast food that we don't get. And then I got a, I got a copy years later, um, like about, I don't know, around about 2010 or something. And it gets to that scene and he mentions Pizza Hut. So he was kind of jarring to see it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the thing midway through production. They, they found, or maybe it was during post, they figured out that Taco Bell wasn't really a thing in Europe. So they um, they approached uh, PepsiCo, the, you know, Pepsi, the soft drink, their company mm -hmm. owned at the time, uh, Taco Bell and Pizza Hut. But Pizza Hut was a thing in Europe. So on the uh, so they decided to do some visual effects work and insert Pizza Hut into the Taco Bell references. I mean, it's pretty well done. Yeah. I have since yeah. eaten Taco Bell. Um. <laughs> it just occurred to me. I'm okay. sorry. I know I've taken. I've taken. I didn't mean to take you off track here. Um, <laughs> it's okay. We're talking about Wesley Snipes and. Uh, well, actually, it seeks us quite nicely into uh, into the next question that we have because the next question is about the rather ill-advised remake of Get Carter, starring Sylvester Stallone. So it all kind of ties in. Um, it was a project that Stallone had long wanted to do with himself in the lead role. Uh, the film was met with derision, basically making back about $90 million on a $64 million production budget. The film was also not released theatrically in the UK where the original was set, and it landed on a rental release in the worst possible window for Warner Brothers when rental chains were on strike against Warner Brothers in protest, which also saw Training Day affected on the home video rental period as well. That's very true. Uh, I was working in a video store at the time, and that video store chain and, and a lot of them basically pulled a lot of Warner Brothers rental releases, Training Day and Get Carter were two of them. Mm -hmm. And if I remember was, rightly, was it was something that? to do with Harry Potter, I think, but I could be wrong. There was some kind of major dispute uh, with Warner Brothers. I can't remember the full extent of what it was. Do you no, know? I wasn't aware of it. No, no, I, I wasn't aware of it. This is, it's all news to me. I, I didn't know what that was all about. 
I might be worth looking into because I remember everybody was looking forward to seeing Training Day because, well, you know, it was Training Day it was a pretty big movie at the time. It was getting a hell of a reviews across the board. You know, there was Oscar buzz about uh, Denzel at the time mm -hmm. for that movie. Uh, Antoine Fuqua directed it. And you had to actually buy it. You could still buy the DVD, but you could not rent them. Uh, and this went on for, I think it was two months. So there was a window of two months where no Warner Brothers films came out for rental in the stores because they all kind of banded together. And like I'm saying, I'm thinking, just going back, and it has been over 20 years, um, I think it was something to do with a decision around Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. I'm not sure if it was a thing where it wasn't going to come out for rental and it was going to be purchase only. Wow. I don't know. I, um, I didn't need to go to video stores to see it. I don't wish to, this is going to sound awful. Okay. And I, and I don't wish to sound elitist at all, but I got to a point when I was at Warner brothers that if I really needed to see something, I could call, one of my counterparts at the other studio and get invited to a screening or something, you know, there were a few movies that were where a lot of people at Warner brothers were interested in for a particular reason, like, um, because it featured an actor that we were thinking of for a big part or something in some other, um, film. And I would call or I'd get someone at, uh, in my department to call, um, the other studios and we'd have a print sent over and I'd arrange for a screening for as many people at Warner Brothers who wanted to see it. So you can understand that I wasn't really going to video stores to find stuff, you know, um, and, I, and I, I know that sounds elitist and awful, but um, that was one of the real privileges I had when I was a senior VP at Warner Brothers. I think you just had seriously overdue fees. But yeah. I have just found out uh, the reason behind it. So here we go. The video rental chains in the UK in 2002, they refused to stock a string of Warner Brothers hit films, which included Ocean's Eleven as well. So it was Ocean's Eleven, Training Day, and it was because of a row over prices. And it was they were in dispute with um, the latter's parent company, AOL Time Warner, because they raised the prices, it charges rental dealers for films. And that was the reason why they stopped. Other films that were affected were um, We Were Soldiers, which was Mel Gibson's movie. I guess that came through Icon. And the award-winning Mexican film, Why Tu Mama Tambien. Mm. So all of well, that them... That yeah, it was just distributed through you. But all of them never saw any rental in the UK. I'd forgotten about Ocean's Eleven. I actually thought that one came through. But yes, um, apparently well, that uh, was the decision. But the, but the two the two of the ones you mentioned, um, We Were Soldiers and um, what was the other one? Y Tu Mama Tambien. That's the one. Y tu, y tu, yeah, uh, we, didn't, those, we didn't have distribution on those in the US. They were not Warner Brothers movies. They, they might have had a distribution deal in the UK. Or something but they that wasn't us well now we know who it was aol time warner um i'll actually just go and stay before my next question i will state that i have a bit of a morbid fascination with the stallone version of get carter and i think it's really kind of the music in it it's not a great film but it's one that easily passes the time so it's, it's not as terrible as most of the other movies we'll talk about get carter i never saw until about 
maybe two years ago, right around the mm -hmm. time the pandemic started, is when the first time I saw it. It was on um, on cable, and I, I there was nothing else on. I watched it because I was morbidly curious about it. Yeah, at, at that's a good way to put it. it. Yeah, I, at the time we did it, um, or they did it, you know, um, I I had seen the original when it first. Yeah got released in the US back in 1971, early 1971. Um, I had seen it and I, I loved it, absolutely loved it. And I just didn't think that anybody, and it had nothing to do with Stallone or anybody else that was involved in it. I just didn't think anybody was going to improve upon it. I couldn't understand why a remake of that was necessary. So I just didn't bother with it. I didn't want um, it to pollute or contaminate my memory of the original movie. Yeah. So I absolutely just did not pay attention to it whatsoever. The post supervisor, I, I still know very well, and he had a miserable time on that movie. I know I used to hear a lot of complaints from him, just a miserable time, just venting. There was nothing for him to complain to me about, but he would vent over that. He had a miserable time. And I don't know who was giving him the miserable time. You know what I mean? I, I, I don't know if it was producers or the director or what, but mm -hmm. he just uh, was not having a good time on that movie. Yeah, That's all yeah. I have to say. I, I haven't seen it. I can't, I can't comment on I didn't like it when I saw it on cable. Didn't like it at all. No, I mean, the original is hugely, you know, it's a huge movie, the original mm. Michael Caine starring movie. It's a classic in all sense of the words. There is just a morbid fascination with this remake of Get Carter. I think it's the same with the Italian job as well. Mm -hmm. Everyone oh, yeah. always goes back to the original, uh, whenever that was made, the one with Michael Caine and everything, and then they just took one look at uh, the Marky Mark version and thought, why is this being made? Yeah, they've got newer cars, but does it really need to be remade? Really? It's it's <laughs> no. a perfect film as it stands. Exactly. No, exactly. You know, And the only draw for me, I was surprised to see Miranda Richardson in um, Get Carter, the remake. And I've always liked her work. Um, so um, that was the only thing when I watched it on cable. That, that, that was my only little twinge. It was like, oh, well, I deprived myself of seeing her do some work. But um, it wasn't all that remarkable. No. Well, I mean, however, Franchise did have some memorable movies. I actually really liked uh, Sean Penn's pet project thriller The Pledge that starred Jack Nicholson in one of the handful of Jack's kind of leading to retirement roles. Now, although the film actually made just $5 million less than what its budget was, um, it, it's considered probably one of the better movies that was released through franchise. But apparently everyone was kind of feeling the fallout from Battlefield Earth on this movie, and apparently they were starting to cut out the financial corners on their shooting days, to which um, Sean Penn himself said, you know, we couldn't even film the the real ending that we wanted to do, and it's a bit confusing in that third act because of it. I've never actually seen the pledge, and it's not because um, of any antipathy um, for anybody in the movie or anything. In fact, everybody, every single person who worked on it was very, very complimentary of Sean Penn as a director. Um, all the people that I knew that were involved in that movie, loved it and loved the experience. Okay, so um, so I, I don't have any um, I don't have any dirt or gossip. Um, I haven't seen the movie because I don't. I was very very busy with something else at the time, and 
the movie wasn't out long enough for me to have seen it anywhere. And, um, and I totally missed all the screenings, whatever screenings there might have been at the studio. Um, I, I, it was just because I was busy on something else. That was 2001, so I'm guessing Harry Potter was keeping me busy. Yeah. The original. Mm. Um, but, it, but everybody loved Sean Penn. And Sean at the time, um, I believe, was in trouble in the press because, you know, he has had a bit of a temper and and uh, and was a bit intemperate with the press and everything so um so whatever the bad boy stuff um was going on i know that was in the press and i don't think that helped his cause because i it only made it made less than 20 million dollars back domestically anyway and international um i can't imagine it made more than it didn't make much I mean, over, overall, that movie didn't even bring in $30 million, I don't think. You know, world, totally worldwide. Um, and again, Warner Brothers only would have had domestic on that, so it, it was not a big profit center for us. Um, but I, I just totally missed it. I still, to this day, it's been 20 years, I haven't seen it. It's, it's worthy of a watch. But the subject matter, too, about making a pledge to catch the killer of a young child. I mean, I know that that's what it's about. Um, you know, it's, when my son was born, he spent a lot of time in hospital. And, um, you, you know, when you're a parent, and you are, you know, mm-hmm. um, there are certain areas you don't want to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's great... like, um, you know, you, you have that curiosity. There is a curiosity about um, a particular thing, you know. But when it comes to children, you know, like, we can be... Fast, totally fascinated with Jack the Ripper and the, the method of murder and, and all that. And, and, and look at all the Agatha Christie things that are out there. And they all involve murder. Is, is, is there any Agatha Christie book or work just about robbery or something like that? They're all about murder. So, so yeah. we can be as curious as they want about murder. But, you know, but, you know when, when you're dealing with a child... That's a subject that I personally just can't bear to. I can't bear to go there. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that it was another thing harder. that kept me away from. Yeah, um, and I just didn't want to go there. You can't. You know, it, the the fact that you can't bear it overrides whatever curiosity you might have mm. about it. That's just me. Well, the uh, the next kind of big star vehicle was a bit more of a bit more of an upbeat affair, 3,000 miles to Graceland. Um, but it still only managed to claw back a quarter of its production budget. Uh, it had a great cast. It had Ocean's Eleven appeal with a load of Elvis impersonators trying to rob a casino. But it was a total disaster for all involved. Now, what do you remember about this movie? Because it had a huge amount of potential. Oh, that... <laughs> that movie was a hoot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and Kurt Russell... Kurt Russell was magnificent in that oh, movie. Oh yeah, I love Kurt Russell. You know, oh he was great. He was just great. You know, and it was it was nice to see him putting the uh, <laughs> the, the Elvis togs on again because you know he did that television movie about Elvis. Yeah, yeah. that um, that aired. You know, and um, this wouldn't have made the press in the UK, but when he did that movie, um, when it aired, it aired on ABC Television. And what the networks did that night was they were all trying to knock each other out. And there were only three networks at the time. CBS, 
was running Gone with the Wind, ABC was running Elvis, and uh, or ABC was running Elvis, NBC was running One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So you had these these three projects that absolutely everybody in the U.S. wanted to watch, and they put them on opposite each other on the networks in one night, and Elvis won. Believe it or not, I mean, I I kept wondering, okay, well. Oh, who's going to win this? I mean, it, I was curious as could be about who was it. And I didn't watch the Elvis thing. I, I'd already seen, I hadn't, I've still to this day have not seen that Elvis movie. But uh, I've already seen Gone with the Wind a bunch of times. My brother was uh, was an usher in a movie theater. So I used to see all kinds of things when I was in high school. Um, and Gone with the Wind had been on a reissue at that time. So I saw that so many times I got bored with it. Um, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, I just thought was magnificent. One of the best movies ever made. Sure. Um, but Elvis, with Kurt Russell, beat them all, you know. And um, and then to see Elvis when he's in the elevator and those those people are looking at him in his, um, in his, yeah. <laughs> in his Elvis outfit and stuff. And you know everybody in the cinema in the U.S., you know, anybody my age, is thinking of that, that TV show. You know, and you and there's a moment there. There's just that moment, and it's so cool. It really is so cool. I think um, that movie had wonderful potential, and um, and you know who I think really killed that movie. Uh, this is just personally, okay. And I'm not speaking for anybody at Warner Brothers or anything. It's just me personally. I think Kevin Costner was miscast. Yeah. Kevin Costner absolutely killed that movie, and I love Kevin Costner. You know. But he just wasn't the right guy for that. He was better suited at Robin Hood than he was for 3,000 Miles to Grace. Okay? <laughs> okay, if I may be so bold. Okay? And I realize I'm talking to two guys in England. Okay? But yeah. he was better suited for Robin Hood than he was for 3,000 Miles to Grace. Because he didn't kill that. He didn't kill Robin Hood. But he killed this movie. Mm. Now, I don't know who you put in his place. I, I don't know around who that you time. Maybe, maybe you get an actor who's... Maybe you get an actor who actually has that sort of an edge to him. Because Kevin doesn't really have that kind of an edge, at least in my mind, you know, never really had that edge. There's something a little more carefree and accessible about him. But maybe you get an actor, maybe if you got Sean Penn to do it, he had enough yeah. of an edge mm. that that role could have been more convincing instead of just being a miserable, because that's what he came He didn't come out to me as being dangerous. Or psychotic. It was just a miserable. <laughs> I think that might think be. That? I think that might be why he, he kind of seemed to do better as uh, Jonathan Kent, Man of Steel, and uh, the Nolan. Yeah, not the he is more universe. kind of a a cooler, kind of laid back approach. Yeah. to a lot of his movie roles that really works, and some of his movies it's like the least dialogue the better for him. <laughs> he seemed to just be able to hold the screen without saying much at all. But it was interesting to see Christian Slater and uh, David Arquette. Jeez, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was it was interesting to see them, but their but their presence in that movie didn't take anything away. From it. Uh, as two thousand two rolls around, uh, so do a number of interesting potentials from franchise. First off, you have uh, Rennie Harlan, fresh off of Deep Blue Sea's success for Warner Brothers. Uh, he's directing Driven, a Formula One racing movie, kind of akin to Days of Thunder starring Sylvester Stallone and we kind of mentioned this the other week yes. Steve yes we well did. it was kind of viewed at the time it was going to be Stallone's comeback vehicle 
no pun intended, makes 32 million against its 72 million dollar budget. Now, from there, you also have Angel Eyes, starring hot sensation at the time, Jennifer Lopez. That makes 29 million against its 38 million dollar budget. City by the Sea, starring the always popular at the time, Robert De Niro. That makes only 29 million against a 40 million budget. Now, shortly by this point, Warner's just counting down the days until this deal is over with, right? Yes. <laughs> um, I do have a little tidbit for you, though. I do have a little yes. tidbit here. So, City by the Sea. The City by the Sea, we went to a screening of that. Mark Solomon and I went to a screening um, of that, a research screening, you know, where they got cards. And um, we were talking to the director, I think, was Robert Michael Caton Jones. Michael Caton Jones, yeah. Yeah. So we were talking to him before it started, you know, because we had worked with him before. So it's, uh, Michael, how are you doing? Um, how has this experience been for you? Okay, so we, <laughs> we were already aware that people were going through the wars when they were working with franchise. Okay, we were already aware of that. So how are you doing? And Michael was like, I can't believe these people are so cheap. I just can't believe it. He said, you wait and see. As you're watching this, they they wouldn't spring for a temp. They, they needed a temp shot of City Skyline. I, I think the New York City Skyline, I'm sure. Because it, it takes place, um, the city by the sea is a down and out sort of um, um, beach city in New Jersey. Um, so he, he was complaining about how how cheap they were. So instead of like mocking up, he couldn't get the rights to like a photograph or anything and he couldn't get them to give him a temp shot to put in. So he just put in a card that says insert <laughs> insert shot here or something like that. <laughs> insert picture here. Is that okay? And he said, I put that in there just to embarrass them. I want them to feel uneasy tonight as they're watching this. And, you know? And we were like, whoa, okay. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, well, <laughs> but we know how he feels about it. <laughs> oh my God. But I did like that movie. It's yeah, dark. It's I mean, it is so dark, you know. But um, it, but it it it's worthwhile, and and I don't know. Uh, maybe Michael couldn't get behind promoting or something. I mean, I don't know why it didn't do well. I, I really don't. It's it's a decent enough movie and everything, but I can't I I can't help but laugh when I think about it. Though, I mean, if that wasn't the nail in the coffin, then the fallout from Ballistic X versus Sever would be with just $20 million of its $70 million budget recouped on release, and it is currently holding the title of one of the worst-rated movies in Rotten Tomatoes... Sorry, Rotten Tomatoes. We are British. Rotten Tomatoes history mm -hmm. at a staggering 0% rotten. Wow. Wow. The director disowned it, after producers uh, fired his editor, uh, Caroline Ross, and took control of the picture, resulting in just a total mess. And to be honest, the only reason that I remember it is because I was working in a video game shop at the time, and the, there was a Game Boy Advance version of it, which was just on the shelves. No one even wanted that. Now, <laughs> I, I know you've said 
through uh, through various channels that this was one of the worst things to come through Warner Brothers at the time. Um, I never said that, but um, <laughs> what you say is true. <laughs> um... I'll actually state that, Bill. I think that's because you'd said it in a conversation we had with someone, and you said, no, oh, Ballistic X versus Sarah. That was a real piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. Something along yeah. that line. It was not good. It was not good. It was not good. It um, and I had high hopes for it. Um, I remember going. To, the premiere was at the Cinerama Dome, and they had just replaced their screen. Have you been in the Cinerama Dome in any of your trips to LA? Yes, I have. Okay, so you know how that it's a circular building. It's closed yeah. down right now because of the pandemic, um, but hopefully it'll reopen. It's not a good place to see a movie. It's not my. It's not my choice to True. go there. Yeah. But um, and I've talked I've I've talked directors out of having their premieres there in the past. I I have, um, but I remember the premiere for X versus Sever was there. I had no nobody asked me. I had no say in where they were going to do it or anything. Um, but I remember they replaced their screen. So if you'll remember, have you seen it? Yes, unfortunately. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so so you'll remember the op well the the opening the main title. Um, everybody's wearing black. In, in the thing. The main title is almost like it's black and white, but it's really, really, really solid black um, on there. But, uh, and then the, the, the credits themselves are in white, okay? So you have white lettering against these black backgrounds. The white on the left side of the screen was reflecting over to the right side of the screen. <laughs> and vice versa. <laughs> they were reflecting over on either side of the screen. It was not... Um, I mean, I noticed that when we did the run through, we did a run through to um, to make sure everything was going correctly. And it's like, um, what are we going to do here? And, and the engineer, you met, you've met Henry. <laughs> yeah. Henry said, I don't know what to say. You can't take the screen out. I mean, it's just they replaced <laughs> the screen here. It's, it's just too bright. There's nothing we can do. We can't take light off the screen because then you won't see anything. Um, it it just is what it is. This wasn't a good place to have the premiere. Definitely not. I mean, we mentioned there about um, Caroline Ross, who was the editor, and she was like on editor on, I believe it's like Last of the Mohicans, I think. Uh, she's done a lot of TV. She was an editor on The West Wing as well, and it's it's really strange that you know she just ended up getting released by the producers on it halfway through, and he didn't get the the movie that they wanted from it. And the director, I uh, can't remember, I can't pronounce his name fully. But he's never really directed anything again since. But he, he just wanted to walk straight away from the movie as soon as they finished it. Release the KOC and cuts. That's the one. <laughs> I'm looking right now on IMDb. Uh, okay, so so Chaos was the director. He's known as Chaos. He was the director. Um, Don Davis, they certainly got a good score. Oh, Caroline Ross got replaced with Jake Cassidy. I vaguely remember that. And Jake Cassidy's a really, really good guy. Um, I remember Caroline when she was an assistant editor, and she was wonderful. Um, again, I didn't have anything to do with this movie, except that we, you know, released it. When Caroline worked with me before, and I'm trying to think of what the movie was, or something really early on, like in the early 90s. Um, oh, she was part of Last Boy Scout. She was wonderful in that. She was an assistant. She was not the editor. She was an assistant on Last of the Mohicans. And she was an assistant with True Lies. So I remembered her from the early 90s, specifically um, The Last Boy Scout. And she was wonderful. She was absolutely wonderful to work with. 
And Jay Cassidy is a really, really good guy. I'm surprised Jay would take this job on. Somebody must have gotten to him and said, we really need your help. We need you to do this. Um, yeah. but, but I wasn't there. I don't know. I don't know what was going on. So after a few more flops, such as this sequel, The Whole Ten Yards, which was awful, and Alex and Emma, which is also not very good. What can you tell us about this, Bill? Let me, this is my take on Alex and Emma, okay? You're right. It's a terrible movie, okay? But, you know, Franchise built their whole business model on getting um, high-profile people to do their pet projects that they couldn't be get done at other studios at, at real studios right okay we've established right. that okay this movie was done by rod reiner one of the right. founders of castle rock castle rock was still an entity through warner brothers okay yeah he couldn't get his little pet project through his own studio what does that tell you about jesus this movie okay <laughs> so I mean, I was shaking my head at the beginning, wondering how this was, you know, how, how could this be? And then I, I went to a um, research screening of it. I mean, I do remember, I remember the screening very, very well. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. <laughs> and I saw a version that you guys never saw. Ouch. Was it better or worse than the version that we saw? I never saw the version you saw. <laughs> I never went down that road again. <laughs> And neither, I will add here, neither did Artie Lange, uh, the comedian. Apparently on the uh, Mark Moran podcast, Lange was describing taking heroin for the very first time in a hotel room. Apparently Lange said, when people ask me why heroin is addictive, this is my answer. The movie on the TV was Alex and Emma with Luke Wilson and Kate Hudson, and I never turned it off. Oh my God! Wow. <laughs> See, and I, I told, I told myself I wasn't going to say anything really mean, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I, um, I don't, I don't have anything else. I don't even remember the, much about the movie. Just that it was not a good experience for me, and it was memorable in that sense that um, I never forgot what a miserable experience I had. And it, and it wasn't just confined to the movie I was watching. There were other aspects of that screening that night that were just memorable for the wrong reasons. Well, speaking of memorable for the wrong reasons, uh, an unprecedented level of flop occurs in the movie A Sound of Thunder. Mm. $11 million made back against a budget of $80 million. Directed by the competent hands of Peter Hyams, who was one of my teachers, yet featuring some of the biggest cost-cutting exercises to ever be seen in a big-budget summer blockbuster movie. Now, as we mentioned, during this time, the federal court case against franchise purchases by Entertainment AG resulted in franchise having to pay $121 million in damages, and franchise ends up filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the process. A Sound of Thunder, which was just finishing production at the time, ends up only getting $30 million instead of $80 million as a result, for, uh, which means they cut corners with pre-visualization software and the worst-looking CGI ever Asylum-level CGI. Yes, terrible. Now, this resulted in a major slump in the bankable Peter Hyams career, 
and the end of the relationship with franchise pitchers and Warner Brothers. Now, what do you remember, you working in post especially, what do you remember about the problems with A Sound of Thunder, which ended up taking two years in post? You must have heard about it. I I can speculate. I did. I, I heard that they were having a really, really tough time. I did meet Peter Hyams. Mm-hmm. Um, he was under a great deal of stress. I'm making excuses for him because he was a total... Um, and he insulted me. So I'm making excuses for him that he was under a lot of pressure and, and he was very, very disappointed with this project. And I think he was probably just lashing out at everybody involved in it. Okay. That, that's the best I can say. And I, and I, you know, and it was like, ouch, you know, why to myself, I didn't say anything. It's like, why would, why would you say that to me? You know, sort of thing when he insulted me. And, um, I can only imagine, and I and I was a fan too. I liked his work up until then. Um, I can't say I've seen anything he's done after that. I don't think anyone else has either. Because I didn't, I didn't want, I didn't want to. And um, I'm looking at his credits right now. There wasn't anything that I thought was worth going to see personally. I I don't know. I know I do know that they they tried to make up for the visual effects shortcomings by making it darker, making the picture darker, tends to cover up imperfections in visual effects. And, um, and they made the sound really, really unbearably loud. Mm. I do remember that. But aside from little bits and pieces that I had seen, I basically, um, I let one of the other people, like Barbara or Elizabeth or one of um, my staff, um, handled the, the uh, delivery on that movie. I just didn't want anything to do with it after meeting Peter. In adding to that, uh, obviously this was around the time that um, the franchise and Warner Brothers relationship just ceased to be. And I noticed the next two movies they released were Steven Seagal movies. (laughs) (laughs) Funnily enough, not under the Warner Brothers banner. Um, So when did this all come about? When was it all over? How did you hear about it? Um, I would imagine it was over the minute they filed um, for Chapter 11 uh, protection. And by then, you know, we were sharing in losses because we weren't getting our distribution, you know, our prints and advertising money back. So um, I suspect, I'm not at all surprised. I don't think Sound of Thunder per se was like the nail in the coffin as much as um, filing for bankruptcy would have been it. And uh, we were all quite happy to say goodbye and get on with um, other production companies. I mean, that's as polite as I can be about it. We were glad. (laughs) Everybody was just glad they were gone. You know, and on a personal level, I was happy that I didn't have to hear any more complaints. I didn't have to hear, you know, the stories that I was hearing from from people who's who I had really great relationships with, with, you know, people whose relationships I cherished, you know, I, w- I was happy that they were no longer in pain and that I didn't have to hear about it constantly. I was happy not to hear uh, complaints from our vendors, you know, about how they were being mistreated or not mistreated. I mean, whatever. I, I, <laughs> I was just happy as could be, and I'm sure everybody was. Somebody really needs to write a book about franchise. The whole story... Yeah, if you're interested enough in um, anything that you've heard, you know, um, and you are a serious writer and want to write something and and actually do the research and all that. And, you know, it's been 20 years. 
I mean, the Sound of Thunder was like 20, 2005, so it's almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, people's memories are still kind of fresh. I'm surprised that if there was ever going to be a book, I'm surprised it didn't come out 10 years ago. You know, that would have been the, the perfect time to do it when, you know, most people were still alive and and the memories were fresh. Ah, well, it's still you not know. too late. And if you need recommendations on who to talk to, Go, go look at the directors of every one of these projects. Talk to Michael Caton Jones. I mean, the conversation with him might be amusing enough to, to encourage you to keep going. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> you know, even David Willis might have things to say. I, I don't know. I don't know that for sure. He, he did their one big success, you know, so maybe he has great things to say. You know, but then, um, you know, they did the sequel and by then, I don't know how to, the sequel was no way a match for the original, but um, it, it didn't do well at all. I mean, it, it, it that one really didn't live up to expectation. They thought maybe they could revive the company, I think. But it wasn't to be. I think by that time the rot had properly set in. But instead of the rot setting in, let's do something a little bit positive with franchise pitches. Now is the time to nominate five. Now's the time to nominate five. Nominate five? Yes, nominate five. Or three, or four, or six, or nine. Now's the time to nominate five. We do love a happy ending. And for our happy ending, we've got to try and plough through the catalogue of franchise pitches so that Bill Daly can tell us what probably their five hidden gems within their catalog are. Are you seriously ready for this, Bill? <laughs> okay, so um, this is in reverse order. Okay, we've already talked about um, two of these movies. Okay, so I would say, number. I would put number five, The Art of War. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. There are, that's, that movie's worth seeing. You know, I wouldn't totally bury everything that they've done. So The, the Art of War. Um, City by the Sea. There's a lot to like about that movie. My story with Michael Caton Jones, notwithstanding, you know, it's a worthwhile movie if you know if you like that kind of dark story and all. Um, number three, I would say Heist. Now, there's a movie we David Mamet. About. Yes. Yes. Mamet has done two movies with franchise, I believe. Heist being one of them. What was the other? Uh, I believe it was Spartan. Oh, Spartan. Right. Right. That's another one I haven't seen. Um, <laughs> so Heist, um, but Heist, yeah, Heist with uh, Danny DeVito, um, Gene Hackman. Um, it's, it's actually a decent movie. I mean, it really is. It's, it's a movie I would recommend. Yes. I like my mom. Enough, I would recommend that, yeah. Um, what next? Then, uh, so that's number three. Number two, um, The Whole Nine Yards. I mean, there, it's, it's their best movie because it's their best movie. Okay, I don't put it in the number one position, but it, it is their best movie. Um, number one, I Battlefield would Earth. put um, no the in-laws. The oh, remake of God, the in-laws. Yeah. Oh. Okay. We... Now again, there was absolutely no reason on earth to remake this movie, and I don't think Michael Douglas brought um, as much charm to it as Peter Falk. You know, in the original, I love the original movie. I don't and and um, Arthur Hiller. You know, it's one of his really big, one of the things that I really like that he that he's done, and he's done a lot of really good things. 
Um, but the original in-laws is just wonderful. I don't know why they would remake it, but this was a decent effort on behalf of franchise. So I would yeah. put that on if, if, if you're interested in seeing the, the best of franchise and the in-laws, I would certainly put in there too. Now, um, those are the five for nominate five, but I, I need to incur, and I've already mentioned this earlier. I encourage everybody to watch the South Park episode <laughs> on John Travolta and Tom Cruise. <laughs> right? Have you seen it? Yeah, yeah. it's the one where in the it? closet, isn't it? Yes. yes. Yeah. But Tom Cruise won't come out of the closet. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I would encourage people to see that. Okay. It, as long as we're talking about Battlefield Earth, we spent so much time on that. You have to see South Park because John Travolta comes in on that one. Ah, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that is an absolutely fabulous. And what would a nominate five be if, if I didn't have six? Okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And the sixth one isn't even something from franchise pictures. That's so keeping with the formula. Yes, I guess that means we've got only one more part of the show, doesn't it, Andrew? It does. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Ah, yes. That one section of the show everyone looks forward to, especially after last time when we finally, finally pulled out 2016's Ghostbusters movie, which, and if, put it this way, if you skipped the beginning of the episode, you would have missed Steve's review. He had been dodging this movie for so long. Like a bullet. Yeah, he, he bit the bullet. It finally came out of the box. So I was thinking I was going to be actually a bit nice to you this week, Steve. <laughs> Yeah, what's in the box this week? I thought it could be a nice bit of a follow-on from happier times. This because... is going to be uh, before sun uh, sunrise or something, isn't it? It's going to be before sunset, yeah. All right. Because you watched before sunrise uh, two weeks back. And now I'm thinking, you know what? You need to go and rejoin Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy in Richard Linklater's sequel. That wasn't uh, happier times back then, so you're not doing me any favours. I think anything compared to what you were put through at the beginning of this episode is definitely going to be happier times for you. So I'm going to break tradition and do the old Flags of Our Fathers routine again, so you are actually going to see the second part before sunset. Let me put it, let me put it this way. May I jump in here? Yes. That, before sunset was a Warner Brothers, Warner Independent project. Yes, it's true. And... Andrew, you are without a doubt the most cruel person in the world. We're going to make him watch that. <laughs> I'm starting to realize this. But is it ever going to be any type of fun if I just give you movies that you are definitely going to like? It is all about the surprise. You may actually enjoy it. You know, the one thing is you always bring something out. You always bring some kind of, you know, tidbit to the actual movie themselves. Uh -huh. <laughs> as you did with Before Sunrise. So yes, um, you are going to watch that for next week. And then we will return to the uh, traditional pull-out-a-title-out-of-the-box the week after. Yeah, okay. I just hope that it's going to be something which is going to be ultraviolet with lots of guns and, you know, give me some action, for God's sake. Surely not every single action film 
isn't under the threshold, the rather dubious threshold on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm not going to lie here. Yes. Got to have something good. It is dubious, and that's what we set out to prove, Mm. that uh, cinema is not always for the everyman. But anyway, um, that is our episode on franchise pitches. I think we may be among the first to actually cover this uh, to some extent. And this, I feel this deserves... A documentary kind of like the Electric Boogaloo documentary on Canon Films. I reckon this would be a brilliant subject to see in that kind of documentary form. So many talking heads you could get for it. Maybe we could host it. Who knows? Maybe. Maybe I'll get on the phone with my documentary people and see if we can actually make it work. There's certainly enough people I know involved with uh, these movies. You know, it would be really cool if um, if it was like the death of Superman. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> I mean, they really got so many people. And I was amazed. You know, I was watching it. and Because and, um, I was there. I was part of that. And I'm watching. And there's there's Lorenzo de Bonaventura talking. You know? You might want to get Lorenzo if you're going to do this documentary. Get Lorenzo. Get Alan Horn. Get Jeff Robinoff. Yeah. Um, I don't remember who specifically was assigned to the franchise stuff I, I do know someone who actually does know eli samahar so it could be something worthy of doing he does kind of strike me as this uh menahem golan style figure when you kind of listen to the stories behind it but you never know that might be something we should see okay bill yeah. as always absolute pleasure having you on the show uh to talk about uh, the most diverse projects we ever bring you in <laughs> most of them you're like why do you want to talk about that? And this is the reason why. Yeah. You know, we, we always uncover something. We always have really good debate on movies that people don't talk about. So thank you very much for freeing up your time to join us yet again. Well, thank you. It's nice talking to you guys. I'm, I'm glad to talk to you again after so, uh, so much time has lapsed. In the meantime, uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for tuning in. And we've got an interesting couple of weeks uh, coming up ahead, of which you will find out by checking out the Pardewood Facebook page mm-hmm. and uh, also the one on LinkedIn if you're a bit more upmarket. Uh, in the meantime, Bill, thank you very much for joining us. Steve, thank you very much for being on time and remembering to press record. And we will catch you again soon. Bye. Wait, I was supposed to press record.